1: with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG Headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on Friday, the 13th, December 2019. In today's episode, the first flight of an all-electric seaplane, and a Chilean Air Force plane crashes on its way to Antarctica. More news, your feedback, and in today's plane tales, Black Christmas. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 404 is ready for pushbacks.
3: Hello everyone and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guys show. It's an aviation podcast and thank you to Radio Roger for doing our intros. They're awesome. And this aviation podcast attempts to cover news between episodes and also cover your wonderful feedback and here to help me do that. From his studio in the English countryside, a professional photographer, former RAFRAAF fighter pilot, former captain for an international airline
4: based in London, it's Captain Nick. Yeah, hi there, Jeff. Looking forward to another show. And 404, this is an error based uh, podcast, I gather. It is. It's also the uh,
3: original area code for the city of Atlanta, Georgia. And also, here from, speaking of Atlanta, the northwest Atlanta suburb, a barbecue master, mar- motorcycle rider, pleasure boat skipper, underwater photographer, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, it's Captain Dana.
5: Oh, good afternoon, gentlemen. How are you, today? Looking forward to, well, what do I say all the time? I always say that. So let's change it up a little bit. Yeah, now. change it's it up. It's going to be another great
3: episode of APG. Darn right it's going to be. And soon we'll be joined by the lovely Miss or Dr. Steph. Uh, Right now she is uh, endeavoring to make her way home from work on a Friday afternoon with lots of traffic. Uh, But she'll be joining us uh, a little bit later. So with that, I think that we should just go ahead and move on to the 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 news. The news. Stand by for news. Alrighty righty then, let's start with item A in the news folder, All Systems Go. This is from the cbc.ca. Can you tell that our producer is from Canada? Um, that's what she likes to read. Uh, this is a an electric seaplane. Oh, and it's also in, guess where, Vancouver?
4: It is a nice place, yeah. British Columbia, grand- Canada. Grand- There's an Anderson or two living in Vancouver. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. part of my family.
3: I love it. It's been a while since I've been there. I used to fly there quite often when I was flying the 727, but haven't been there in years and years. Anyway, Harbor Air uh, has retrofitted their uh, ADHC-2 de Havilland Beaver, and they just had the first successful test of the world's first all-electric seaplane Tuesday morning of this week in Richmond, BC. It was a a
4: nice looking beaver. (laughs) Thank you. Nice beaver.
2: Thank you. I just had it stuffed.
3: (laughs) Anyway, getting back to the news. (laughs) Thank you very much. All right. Um, Harbor air um, there in Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, tested this uh, airplane for the first time uh, for a total of three minutes. Now, I know that, you know, one of the obstacles to electric airplanes uh, is the fact that the battery technology and the power density or whatever term they use uh, is not yet to the point where it's going to allow for long uh, flights, but seems to be the perfect thing for this company, because I think their average flight, I think it's saw somewhere here, like 15 to 25 minutes, and this um, electric engine on uh, the Beaver uh, will give them a 30-minute flight length or flight time length, uh, and in addition to a 30-minute reserve, so I guess for a full hour. So, it's perfect for this kind of flying, uh, the kind of flying that uh, Harbor Air does in Vancouver, and uh, the Pilot at the controls, I believe, is the guy that is the founder and chief executive. Yes, Greg McDougall. He took off solo in the bright yellow retrofitted de Havilland Beaver float plane. Spent three minutes in the air over Richmond, B.C. Rich. Okay, that's yeah, right there near Vancouver. Before circling back and landing in front of a crowd of roughly 120 onlookers and media, uh, he says it was good, like a beaver on electric steroids smiling on the dock immediately after the flight it was definitely smooth and a lot quieter than the piston engine that's for sure um mr it's Mc-
4: changed the look of the aircraft quite a lot is not it because uh, the beaver had a radial uh, engine i think did it i think so i know that there are some out there that
3: have a ret- uh, like conversions to um turboprop but i'm not sure if this one Um, went straight from radial to electric engine or not. Um, Okay. I mean, it's a
4: 62-year-old aircraft, which is very impressive. I I love the fact they've whacked this new technology in it. But I think it looks pretty sleek.
3: It does. They used, it's powered by NASA-approved lithium-ion batteries, also used on the International Space Station. Oh, good. Uh, He says it's a prototype for sure. But anyway, they're hoping to get, in the next couple of years, Get the engine and uh, all that part of it uh, certified, and then also the um, airplane certified to have this um, conversion. And then they're going to convert their entire—I uh, think it's fort—is it forty-two airplanes? I'm trying to recall exactly the numbers. Yeah,
4: here. it is forty-two aircraft fleet. Yeah, single beavers, otters, Beavers, single otters, and twin otters. Yes. So uh, anyway, so
3: I thought that was interesting, and um, hopefully. Battery technology will continue to improve over time, so that you know they can uh, retrofit it to operations that uh, have longer stage lengths than what Harbor Air does. But it's a it's a start for sure.
4: It's great well, to see Canada leading the way. Sorry, dana Yeah, uh, I'm just thinking about outside the
5: boxes I tend to do, mm-hmm. and uh, electric and water. Hmm.
3: Well, I don't. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that's unless you're like holding on to the one of the electric terminals inside the engine cowling, and then sticking your foot in the water. I don't know. I don't know what the there might be some kind of a risk involved in that. Yeah,
5: I mean, I'm just thinking. You know, it's airplane splashing through water. Yeah. Um. So that's one thing I'm thinking about. The other thing is, uh, um, I'm thinking about lightning. Hopefully I'm know. guessing
4: they've, they've thought of this, but after all, if you've got an aircraft full of petrol and lightning, they don't mix, and neither does petrol and water. So if they can keep the batteries uh, safe from having water ingress in the same way you kept the fuel tanks safe Maybe. from having water ingress, you're going to be just as safe, I would assume.
3: Or like, and I think that Tesla's, uh, Teslas and other electric cars are driving out there in the rain. I don't know. I know it's not quite the same thing, you know.
5: No, I'm, I'm just, you know, yeah. again, you, you, know, I like to, like to. I, think that I, I suspect possible.
3: they've thought of this though. Uh, uh, I'm hoping they probably have. <laughs> no. I, I hope they're watching our show because yeah. they're going to go. Oh
4: shoot, I'm, we did I'm, him. Oh, think of that. Yeah, yeah, Col- of that, that? Captain Colton, <laughs>
5: He's a sharp. He's Let's a sharp recruit. As a him
4: immediately, and get him onto our <laughs> company, and he can play with our beavers. Oh boy. Um, wet beavers at that
3: okay uh just wanted to mention the company that makes the engine uh Ma- now i'm not sure it's magnet x or magnix i'm not sure how that's pronounced it's uh all lowercase m-a-g-n-i and then a big x so
4: i would say i would hope it'd be magnix that Mag- sounds
3: reasonable to me but who knows Yeah. anyway all right moving on to some sad news and i think there are some updates to this although we don't have them in our um, news article here. I'm pretty sure uh, when when this got into our news segment, uh, they still had not found the um, Chilean mini- uh, military plane, a C-130 that was uh, flying from Chile to uh, what's it called the um, the base that they were flying to. Uh, was it McMurdo? No. No. Um, it, it's it's a, a Chilean uh, owned. Uh, base, and it should say King right? George's Island, in not That's Antarctica. it. King George's Island. Thank you. Um, they uh, had uh, well, here, let me read this. Probably the best thing to do. Uh, Chilean military plane with 38 people on board has crashed on its way to Antarctica. Chile's Air Force said Tuesday. Air Force officials said that they had not been able to locate the Hercules C-130 transport, but based on the number of hours it had, it has been missing, they've determined it likely crashed. A search and rescue mission is ongoing. And I just saw something on the ride. I, I, by the way, I just got in the door from a, a four-day trip. And in the train on the way home, I was reading through some news sources that uh, showed uh, some uh, progress, some updates on this crash. And they have found some of the wreckage, and they have found some bodies. Um,
4: yeah, I'm just looking at the BBC saying there were no survivors, said the head of their air force. Yeah, And they've uh, they found wreckage and identified it as the aircraft from the markings on the wreckage. And they've also found human remains, very sadly. Yeah. And uh, I, right at this point, I don't think they have any idea w- what happened,
3: what brought it down. Um, I had 38, um, let's see, 38 total uh, people on board. Yeah. Um, Let's see, both crew members, I think it was like 17 crew members and 20-something passengers heading down to uh, the, uh, the base. And uh, they made it about halfway between Chile and the Antarctic base and when it went missing. So, um, again, I'd just like to uh, point out that, um, again, initially, when nothing was known as to what possibly brought it down, uh Juan um um Brown Juan Brown Bluncalerio uh his YouTube channel uh he does a nice job of kind of going over uh the the mission of the airplane and what they do at the base and uh because Juan also flew the C130 and so he had a, a lot of information about it so uh, again uh, I I recommend checking out his channel called Blanca Lirio. I'll put a link in the show notes very sad and uh, hopefully, we'll find out what happened. You know, it just kind of seems to have just fallen out of the sky and crashed into the, uh, into the water. Let's move to item C. Uh, and this is from the Aviation Herald Accident. Ethiopian DH 8D, De Havilland 8 um, 400. And a lot of times we just call that the 400, right? The dash 400. Um, Ethiopian Air- Airlines. Dash 8400 was performing flight Echo Tango two twelve from Dire Dawa. Uh, dire Dawa. I don't know. Dire Dawa. I would say it's Dire Dawa. Okay. But, uh, to Addis Ababa. Addis, Addis Ababa?
4: Ababa. Yep. Yep. Been, uh, been there.
3: Seventy four. I have not. Uh, Seventy four passengers and six crew was accelerating for takeoff from Dire runway 33 in night conditions. When a number of, at least five, hippopotamuses,
4: would that be hippopotami, maybe? Well, I think it might be hippopotami. I think hippopotamuses is probably correct, but I'm going to look check it out now and see. Okay, do that while
3: I continue to read this from the Aviation Herald. At least five hippopotamuses crossed the runway. The crew rejected takeoff, lost directional control. The aircraft went off the runway and came to a stop on soft ground. There were no injuries and the aircraft received substantial damage beyond repair. And I believe this actually happened back in 2016.
4: Oh, wow. Um, Uh, By the way, uh, either is correct. The plural is hippopotamuses, but hippopotami can also be used. Okay. So they hit a a hippopotamus, uh, hit, hit (laughs) hit
3: a hippopotami. Is that a show title? No, I, I don't think
4: know. you'd be you'd hit hit hip <laughs> you'd hit <laughs> hippopotami or you'd hit a hippopotamus. If Harry hit a hit a hippopotami, how many <laughs> hippopotami
3: did Harry hit? Okay, uh, we're getting silly. Sorry. Um, the Aviation Herald learned of this occurrence on December tenth, uh, twenty nineteen, and uh, while discussing hull losses of Ethiopian Airlines with Captain Burned. Kai Von Hoslin. Um, what's TRI? What's that stand for?
4: Uh, it's usually a Something training instructor. instructor.
3: Okay, training yeah. instructor, B737, retired former 737-800MB, 38M captain for Ethiopian Airlines, having left the company in April of this year, who specifically asked to be identified as a source. Um, so following, oh, that's an
4: odd thing to do, to be is. specifically asked. Mm-hmm. you want to have a guess at the airline or something
3: might have something to do with it i don't know there might be some politics or something involved here um anyway uh captain hoslin told the aviation herald that just this summer 2019 the aircraft um echo tango alpha november yankee had been dismantled both engines had been damaged beyond repair in addition to substantial fuselage damage which prompted the airframe to be written off The airframe was sold to be parted out following the accident. All night flights into or out of unfenced airports were halted. The airline at the time had released a press release stating the crew faced a runway incursion by wild animals during their takeoff roll and aborted takeoff.
4: Yeah, they were really angry. By the way, a TRI is a type rating uh, instructor.
3: Okay good to know and oh i was also going to say maybe was this the captain the ethiopian airlines captain that was critical of the training of ethiopian airlines um uh, during the aftermath the investigation of the ethiopian 737 max crash i I think that is the same guy maybe that's why he wanted to be specifically mentioned Hmm. um yeah so interesting um that uh, this happened and we it seems like Hardly anybody knew anything about it until just recently. But uh, anyway,
4: uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a hazard of the jungle, the bush. Uh, being a bush pilot, you wouldn't have thought seven thirty-seven guys were bush pilots, but or even uh, Dash eights uh, bush pilots. But uh, yeah, if you're going to have a a, a a runway without any surrounds, you're going to get the odd animal walking on. But uh, a hippo is a sizable piece of kit. Good yeah. Lord.
5: Actually, the Dash 8 is quite a, a capable airplane to be able to fly in the bush like that. Yeah. Oh, but to hit the hippopotami? Well, to hit the hippopotami, that's a whole different story because that, it that, it that, hop, you know, it's not fenced in. Um, couldn't it
4: hop a hippopotami?
5: It'd pop it <sighs> miss us. Miss us. <laughs> Anyways, uh, to get our 50% up, you yeah. are right, Jeff, by the way. He no, was, I wasn't. Oh, hang the
3: on, hang on. Let me stop that we'll get you we'll get her in a minute what was i right about
5: (laughs) that was about the he was the he was the captain was critical of the Uh, um the 737 max
3: that's making sense now it is now so there Uh, you go there we go hey hey look who's here from her lakeside home in the Carolinas, Dr. And skydiver, marathon school runner, school. strength training, junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, it's Dr. Steph.
6: Hey guys, glad I could finally join y'all. Oh, virtual hug from, uh, oh, from Data there. That's what So, I feel um, like I should also have something on my head here. Jeff and I are sans Santa Claus... Well, I have uh,
3: headphones, so that, that's well, kind like, of something on my head. I, but I don't have happened. a Santa Claus
4: hat. Oh, look. <laughs> Very nice. A tiara. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but oh,
5: yeah. If there if she is, Miss yeah, America. Okay, go ahead. Absolutely gorgeous.
6: Thank you. Absolutely.
5: Gorgeous. No, I, I mean, I always have to have something on my head because I'm bald. I'm like
3: the three of you. Yeah, this you is cold, made for like a child
6: or something, though. It really is quite, quite small. So, so
3: <laughs> I noticed you right. have that handy there. Uh, do you wear that
4: often while you're at home?
6: I just like to look at it. Okay, you know, just <laughs> keep it nearby. Remember the pageant. Cool.
4: That's right. You know, pro- prom queen moment.
6: <laughs> smile, smile, a <laughs>
4: Do you have the sash, too, somewhere nearby?
6: nearby? Uh, so what? Do you, oh, a sash? sash? yeah. Uh, yeah, of course. It's just over there. Okay. So can, dear listener, you can see it. Just imagine it yeah, in just the corner think corner it. whatever. whatever that yeah. way.
5: What's Where that around? thing that you wear when you, you getting married?
4: Mm. A, veil? a veil? A veil, yeah. Do you have that nearby? A I now. was going to say stockings. Stockings. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> Wow, Thongs. this is a
6: uh, aviation uh, podcast. Yes, that's hi, hey, welcome. Uh, shoot, oh.
4: HR is back. <laughs> I know. Yeah. We,
3: we gotta be. Oh, and we'll have to start party I poop, poop, need another drink now as
4: well.
5: <laughs> <laughs> HR shows up. I need another you know drink. <laughs> yes.
3: Okay, so we were just talking about the hippopotami being hit by the
6: I, yeah
3: airplane, and
6: that uh, ruin your day. Yeah,
3: yeah, and it was kind of interesting that um, the guy that said please use me as a source was the guy that. As uh, Dana has just confirmed, is the guy that was highly critical of the training of the uh, Ethiopian uh, pilots uh, in the aftermath of the seven thirty seven Max crash. Gotcha. They had there anyway.
4: So does it say that they actually hit them, or did they just lose control of the airplane, avoiding them? I think they ended up
3: hitting them because uh, somewhere I read that uh, there there was one or two um, hippopotami um, killed. At some point, oh, I, right. think. Okay. I don't see it now, but I do remember mm. reading it somewhere.
6: Three uh, hippos were killed as a result of the accident, well, as right. reported by a local newspaper.
3: There you go. Okay, why can't I mm. see that?
4: Mm. Well, at the very bottom. Two kangaroos mm. with an F eighteen, so I think three hippos is a pretty good score.
6: Yeah, that's a. They, I think they're more substantial uh, mm, animals. I they the, the, the the they do jump
4: quite as high, though.
6: No, maybe, I don't know. Have you ever seen a hippopotamus jump?
4: They only, they only jump <laughs> at <pretty> night.
6: Good... <laughs> All
4: right. I, I've, I've never, never seen heard. an elephant fly, but they made a movie about it. And true.
5: Dumbo. Um, was going to say, oh yeah. I bet you the locals are really happy though. Free meat. Yeah. That's oh, yeah. Uh, yeah According so.
3: to uh, Colonel Carl, <laughs> Miss Colonel Carl, uh, that they, uh, that hippo beef is great.
4: Oh, right. But mm-hmm. would it
3: be actually beef? Mm, I don't think so. No, anyway.
4: The, are they called sea cows? <laughs> in which case, they would definitely be beef. Wait, no, 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 no. That's something different. Sea cows are a um, manate, I mean, hippos, manatee, are, they yeah. do
6: swim, right?
4: Yeah, yeah. Yes, they do. Mm-hmm. Yep. Or, or they just walk along the bottom. They walk along well, the bottom
5: yeah. of their in the water. <laughs>
6: It looks like swimming, kind of, sort of. Yeah. This
3: show has gone so far off the rails already. It <laughs> <Yes.
4: laughs> just started. Well, Christmas uh, is coming. We're all excited. Yes, that's true.
5: Okay. Speak for yourself, sir. Yes, oh, yes, yes. Uh, bah, bah, bah. Says the one with the flashing Santa hat. Yeah. Laura well, someone Dave. was
6: angry at us on Facebook. I see there's a Facebook really? reactions up at the top of the the page now.
3: Oh. Yeah. So <laughs> how do you tell that?
6: Do you guys don't see that? Just me?
5: Mm. What are you talking about? Oh, I see. Oh, yeah, 19. Facebook.
6: What? Wait, what do you yeah. say?
5: It's actually my friend that's angry. <laughs> where do you see well, that? You, you can talk to her. Yeah, well, we're going out oh. for dinner tonight, so I will oh. talk to her. <laughs> Maybe that's why she's angry. You're here instead of at dinner with her. Well, we're going out at 8 o'clock, so we got plenty of time. Oh. I don't all know. Right. What to say, where do you all see that?
6: Top left right corner to live the where it says
5: live, and then I with 31.
6: There's 31 people watching on uh
3: Oh, over there. Okay. Uh,
5: I see it. Now. You get uh, likes, then one laughing, which is the airline pilot guy oh, laughing whoa. at yourself, and then <laughs>
6: <laughs> Teresa's and then mad. Dana's friend is angry with us. Apparently, we've said something to.
3: So Apparently what's, so. What's her name? She's Therese, just, Teresa, Therese. we understand why you're upset with Dana. We get Teresa the Byam. same way.
5: <laughs> I hope she's not mad because she has to cancel for some reason tonight, then I'll be mad.
3: There it goes. Columbus Carl in Mississippi. Ding, if you ding, have ding. to
4: explain it, uh, Carl. It's too complicated.
6: <laughs> but we knew that. He's explained it to us before. I know.
3: Yeah, I um, are trying I'm really to get short to that.
4: My but... Okay,
3: let's move on, shall we?
6: Yeah, what's next?
3: Item D. Excellent. Uh, this is from somewhere. Oh, A- A- Aviation Herald again. Uh, Thomas Cook, Airbus A330 200 registration, golf, Mike Lima, Juliet Lima. Performing flight 2915 from Veradero, Cuba, Cuba, to Manchester, England, with 320 passengers and 11 crew, was en route at flight level 370 over the Atlantic Ocean, about 150 nautical miles northeast of Grand Bahamas Airport, when the aircraft entered a denser area of cloud, (laughs) a very dark cloud. As as
6: opposed to the previously regularly dense (laughs) cloud that they were in.
3: Read between the lines probably a really nasty looking dark cloud Uh, with increasing turbulence. The captain instructed the cabin crew to immediately take their seats over the PA. And about five seconds later, the aircraft encountered severe turbulence causing an altitude deviation of up to 500 feet. Yikes. The autopilot disconnected. The sounds of hail impact occurred at the same time. Ooh, that's not good. When you you hear the hail,
4: no, N- not at three,
3: seven, zero. You don't <laughs> No. <Golly. laughs> about 90 seconds after the onset, the severe turbulence ceased. However, light to moderate turbul- turbulence was observed throughout the next hour of flight. Immediately after the PA, a flight attendant in the aft galley, who was unable to immediately stow her galley cart, applied the brake on the cart and attempted to wedge it into a safe place. However, her foot and ankle became trapped underneath the galley cart. Hmm. When the turbulence su- uh, sufficiently subsist- subsided, other crew members came to assist and free her foot. In consultation with MedLink, it was determined the ankle was fractured and it was decided to continue the flight to Manchester because, after all, it was just a flight attendant. Um, later, yeah, I mean, huh. Later, it turned out another flight attendant had received a minor back injury not apparent during the flight. The aircraft landed safely in Manchester about seven hours and 20 minutes later. One cabin crew received serious, another cabin crew minor injuries. The aircraft received minor damage to the radome during the turbulence encounter. Uh, Let's see. The UK Air Accidents Investigation Branch released a brief bulletin concluding the probable cause of the accident was an unexpected turbulence encounter while avoiding areas of known CB uh, cumulonimbus activity. It is likely that the number of injuries would have been greater had passengers been moving around the cabin at the time. Um, So let's see. The AAIB reported that the captain had, had observed a number of thunderstorm clouds during departure from Cuba, which did not paint on their weather radar number one. The crew switched to weather radar two, which seemed to solve the problem. At the time of the turbulence encounter, they were in cloud at flight level 370, the crew was maneuvering to avoid weather returns on their radar. The captain had eliminated the fastened seatbelt sign about five minutes prior to the turbulence encounter. While being clear of, the, of all weather returns by at least 30 nautical miles, the aircraft entered a denser area of cloud. The turbulence increased, prompting the captain to make a PA, instructing cabin crew to, to immediately take their seats. Five seconds later, severe turbulence occurred, lasting for 90 seconds. So uh, there's a, also a picture included of a satellite imagery of the uh, storm system that they were kind of trying to make their way through or around.
4: Doesn't look very nice, does it? No,
3: it looks pretty scary to me, actually.
4: It's a bit ugly. Mind you, there's no real way around it that you can see. I mean, so mm-hmm. I suspect they were just trying to pick their way through. Uh, those um, 200s now, I don't know if they were the same fit out as our 200s, uh, but the 200s we got from Air Berlin did not have very good radars. They were the really early models, and the same as our initial Airbuses, we got the 340-300s. By the time I left the company, uh, our 330s had a really nice uh, uh, interleaved uh, flat scanner that uh, would sweep multiple layers, and uh, it would also interleaved between the two different range scales selected between both sides it was very sophisticated it could work out why, where the terrain was and it would have automatically painted into the right angle um it, and it really did display well it was exceedingly good but those earlier ones you had to work at them all the time if you wanted to get the best out of them you couldn't just set them and leave them and wait to see if something appeared on them
3: that sounds like uh something that dana and i are familiar with
4: yeah, yeah, it's hard work, isn't it, if you're in mm-hmm. bad weather? Because you've really got to be at that scanner all the time, just checking to see that you're painting the right areas and that you know, something isn't being obscured. Uh, whereas the later versions uh, really do it all themselves and are really very good at it.
5: Yeah, we're always having to change her.
4: Yeah, it's kind of an art,
3: our view. You yeah, learn with yeah. experience. and
4: Yeah, you know. playing with the gain all the time, just trying to make sure yeah. you're not swamping out other weather spots that you want to avoid yeah. i'm just just easiest. wondering
6: that uh if they had x-ray uh, equipment on the aircraft to determine that the ankle was indeed fractured oh. of the flight attendant
4: and i nope. think they just they wobbled it around until she screamed <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
5: i was i was thinking if you're gonna be on that airplane for that amount of time i hope they had some really good drugs in that medical kit em key oh there's MK. alcohol available
4: yeah oh they have those uh, inflatable splints and things yeah. That, yeah and alcohol that would work treatment <laughs> but steph's point is
3: well taken uh, yes. There's not really a way to know whether or not it's i mean fracturing.
6: there's some obvious ones you know if it was an open compound you know
3: yeah at that wrong angles like a bone That's very out. obvious
6: <laughs> yeah, yeah that, those are very obvious but you know it can be hard to determine uh, between a bad ankle sprain and a fracture sometimes as well but um maybe it was very obvious so
5: Oh, you well, know, maybe blew up like a balloon.
6: Yeah, even bad fra- uh, uh, sprains can do that, but yeah.
5: Okay. Anyway, I was just well, being. Well, a course, cool. Poor circulation. <laughs> yeah.
6: Well, uh, either way, not a fun uh, remaining, whatever, seven hours back to yeah, Manchester after like that. Hap- yeah, that's, that's a long time the, to go. I feel bad for. It. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Hmm. Wondering if, um, well, I'm not going to speculate. Okay. Well, um, and, when I was reading through this, um, it w- I'm reminded of the fact that uh, we aviators know that uh, when you're traveling, especially downwind of these very uh, big storm systems, that for every knot of wind, the turbulence related to that storm and sometimes even the hail uh, from it can extend, you know, one nautical mile for every uh, knot of wind. So am not sure about That's the hail thing, me. if it can go that far, but... It's amazing how sometimes hail can can uh, get out there way far away from the cell itself. Yeah. Yep. If you're going to pick
4: a side, pick the upwind, upwind side. Upwind's the way to go if you can. You're <laughs> yes. right. We love uh, wind. Upwind is upwind. good.
3: Yeah. Okay. Especially if, well, never mind um e i was thinking of captain l
6: i yes i could gather that
3: (laughs) we love it Uh, we're just kidding we're just making all that up he's fine he's fine i mean um e accident avianca uh boeing 787-800 near Barcelona on november 3rd 2019 an overspeed correction causes injuries Uh, They were flying uh, November 796 Alpha Victor, a 787-8. Flight 18 from Bogota, uh, Colombia, to Barcelona Uh, was descending through flight level 260 towards Barcelona when the indicated airspeed increased, reaching a value close to the maximum operating speed. In order to reduce the speed, the crew deployed the speed brakes and pulled the control column, causing a vertical acceleration of about 2.1 2.1 G <laughs> that's a lot in a
6: feel that in your uh, seat there.
4: Yeah, everyone sat down in a yeah. hurry.
6: <laughs> I feel like I suddenly <laughs> weighed twice as much as I did before. Oh, wait. <laughs>
2: All
3: of us that fly airliners know have had the experience, either us doing it ourselves or somebody else doing it, like deploying speed brakes, like too quickly, or perhaps Uh, Disconnecting an autopilot and putting a manual input and maybe overdoing it a bit. Not 2.1 G's worth, but it's, it's, uh, you have to be very careful when you attempt this kind of maneuver, uh, to keep the speed from exceeding the maximum operating speed. Um, wouldn't you agree, guys? Maximum speed
6: or maximum? (laughs) (laughs) Well, or just increasing the, uh,
3: well, I'm saying that in in order to, To keep it from exceeding the maximum oh, yeah, operating yeah, speed, yeah. and you're so you're doing something to Correct. to keep it from happening. You have to be careful the way you deploy speed brakes and activate the control yoke,
4: especially if you're taking oh, yeah. over from auto flight. Yeah, yeah, when you're at high speed, they're very sensitive. Yes, yeah So don't mess about with them much. So mind you, getting to 2.1 g is quite impressive. So it sounds like you planted the yolk into his tummy it sounds like maybe they kind of didn't notice it until like the very last minute and went
3: oh and you know just overreacted
4: yeah um, right. a bit of a start that's, that's right exactly right. what i
5: was about to say it sounds like an way overreaction yeah because sometimes you don't realize to, go ahead Dana. i was just gonna say it, it, you know probably getting really close to the uh you know obviously maximum operating speed so that was there's way much you know the barber pole as it says maximum Mm-hmm. maximum operating speed we know it as the barber pole mm-hmm. um so that uh, that can kind of get the pucker factor up a little bit and you can overreact
3: very easily or in a vertical tape um digital display nick it would be some kind of a colored bar or something that would alert you to the fact that you're getting close to the maximum speed that's
4: exactly right big red bar okay Uh, But, uh, I mean, uh, the airbuses will, of course, um, protect themselves, uh, So, and they will do it in a gentlemanly manner, Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to uh, whacking the 2.1 chisel.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not good, not good. Uh, But the um, the
4: M8's got uh, protection uh, built in, hasn't it? It's got. And I don't know how much and, and what it does protect, but it does have elements of uh, self protection to stop you from um, overspeeding and doing similar things, doesn't it? I, I think so. it would, seems to me it would. because
3: it has,
5: I, I mean, I, I imagine the 787 being a, n- a really new generation airplane fly by one
3: would 100. have protection. Yeah. Don't get it. No. Don't either. Anyway, uh, they reported a flight attendant and a passenger received serious injuries when the aircraft encountered the plus 2.1 G as a result of the crew pulling back on the control column and deploying the speed brakes. So an investigation has been opened. So we'll keep our eyes and ears open for the investigation results. And I guess we decided we weren't going to do item F, right? Or do you want to go ahead and do it anyway? I don't know. No.
5: And it's. I think it's too long. Maybe yeah. just a quick summary of what caused it. Well, you okay.
3: Think? What we're referring to here is item F. Um, an update on the um, Southwest Boeing 737 accident that occurred near Philadelphia last year, April seventeenth, twenty eighteen. An uncontained engine failure. Although some people have been telling me that, technically speaking, now maybe our engine experts in the uh, chat room can um, let us know. But I believe that technically it was not an uncontained failure because the part of the engine that is supposed to contain things actually was effective, but somehow the fan blade got outside of that protected region and and almost went in front of the engine and out or something like that. So I don't know. I'm not an expert in this. But anyway, we'll just use the uncontained um, uh, term here. Uh, You'll recall that the 737 was um, flying along. Let's see. Uh, does it talk about exactly where they were? I don't know what altitude they were uh, going through. Maybe that's later down in the article. But anyway, uh, there was a big, big explosion. Um, the, uh, there was a crack in the uh, dovetail uh, of the fan blade number 13 which resulted in the fan blade separating in flight and impacting the engine fan case at a location that was critical to the structural integrity and performance of the fan cowl structure. This impact led to the in-flight separation of fan cowl components, including the inboard fan cowl aft latch keeper, which struck the fuselage near a cabin window and caused the window to depart from the airplane, the cabin to rapidly depressurize, and the passenger fatality. So it actually wasn't a fan blade that hit the window uh, that caused the depressurization. It was actually a component of the the cowl itself. So anyway, it goes into a lot of detail here, analysis of the fan blade and other fan blades in the engine, and the fact that uh, they weren't supposed to see these kind of cracks in these fan blades with such low cycles. And in this case, the cycles were around... 32,636 uh, since new, and uh, they found several other. Uh, and of course, we know that um, before this occurred, there was that uh, another Southwest flight off of the uh, Gulf Coast near Pensacola that um, almost had an identical uh, situation or occurrence. And uh, but they didn't have anything hit the airplane and take out a window, and, and there was no uh, injury in that case. Uh, but the same kind of cycles on the fan blades and the crack and everything else so uh, apparently they're still trying to figure out um, what led to the cracking and uh, the article goes into a lot of detail uh, regarding that so maybe my co-hosts can now kind of jump in here and uh, relate any other information uh, this article uh, highlights or maybe they may not
5: well, I mean, it just I mean, what my suggestion, one that was just a summary, and just you did a good job with it.
3: Yeah, I'm trying to just summarize the uh, the thing that I actually looked at was, you know, the cause of the, you know, why did this thing happen and why did it crack and that kind of thing. But I didn't actually get as far as re- reading the, um, yeah, uh, I actions. A,
4: I took a good read through the crew actions. Okay, uh, so what would and- your summary be? My summary would be that uh, they took quite a while to uh, action the uh, engine problem initially. But then again, they were also dealing with a depressurization at the time. So there was a certain amount of uh, priority required over which drill they were going to do first. And uh, I think we both agree that you need to get your probably descent going. And then when you've got a spare moment, you're going to start tackling other things that are, are, are less, perhaps, less important in your mind. It depends how you prioritize this, um, but uh, there was comments made that uh, on the order of which the checklists were done, um, none of which uh, really uh, were critical. They just said that you know, this checklist wasn't quite completed. There are a few actions left out of this checklist. That sort of thing, but they did continually say that the omissions had no bearing on the outcome. So, and they also repeated that, of course, it's the captain's uh, right to abbreviate, alter, adjust checklists as they see fit uh, in an emergency situation. Not every situation is a textbook. I'm sitting in the sim, I'm going to do this, that, and the other. So, uh, my wife's come home, we're going to get some noise now. Okay. Uh, so, uh, basically, they came out and uh, said, no, they were completely happy with everything that was done, despite the anomalies they centered on. And,
6: and I don't it- know if uh, any of you had the chance to, at um, Oshkosh this year, go and listen to the crew talk about um, their experience, because they were there. Um, uh, and, and kind of they go through the same thing, where they you know, they talk about the initial kind of shock of things, and how that kind of uh, it takes you a minute to recover from that startle factor and then go, okay, what needs to be done first, second, third, and you're kind of going through things and trying to make sure you hit all those things. But at the same time you have to, um, uh, you know, you're getting information potentially from the cabin. You're trying to figure out where you're going to go to, to land. You're trying to just fly the airplane, which is first and foremost. So um yeah, the struggle factor and
3: sensory overload and mm-hmm. you know trying to sort it all and out. And they said that it was
6: quite a handful to manage the plane initially after this, like right in the first few moments with the uncontained engine failure. So very interesting. That just handling the plane was difficult.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry I missed that. Didn't have a chance to it was see
6: it was it. a good talk. I'm glad I glad I went to it.
3: Okay. Well, uh, if Any of you want to go into further detail regarding that report, it will be in the show notes.
4: And it's worth a read, actually. It's It's a good analysis, even though it is rather dry. Maybe we should rewrite it
3: and make it like really sensational.
4: Yeah, that would be a very <laughs> good idea. You know, this is
6: this is the stuff they should publish, right? Like for yeah. the general public to read. Everyone will just go, oh, okay, so really everything was fine, and it worked out the way it was supposed to, and uh, they were trained to take care of this problem, and yeah. We should do it's really- like
3: a reenactment um, if we had a little extra time and production equipment.
4: Yeah. The, the only that problem find- with these is that they list every slight anomaly. Uh, and there's not a lot that uh, someone, a member of the public, can do to separate between a very small um, change in procedures or a checklist item that might have been skipped over because it wasn't important and a big item. Yeah, that's, that's uh, it. it all given the same emphasis on one of these reports, so mm-hmm. it's quite obvious that the public could look at that and go, "Oh my God, she missed two items from this checklist." So. You know, you go to yourself, well, actually, in the big scheme of things, it was much more important to get the aircraft on the ground and get this woman who had been so badly injured treated uh, because she didn't know exactly what the situation was with her. Mm -hmm. Um, That it was perhaps to tick a few extra boxes, which you might have done in the sim, but not in real life.
5: Can I point out one thing? Yes. And and, and that is is that when we are in training – Uh, in the simulators we do have uh, a rapid decompression scenario that we would deal with and you know being the startle factor and the first thing that you're really feeling and in the first sensor you're probably going to have is that loss of you know the, the loss of pressurization i don't know how you know whether it took the wind out of their out of their chest or not but you know certainly i'm sure they put the oxygen mask on relatively quickly um but the reality is the way that we're trained is that we're to analyze and try to deal with that immediately and either, you know, look at it, whether it's a uh, a structural failure of the aircraft and or whether it's not a structural failure of the aircraft and immediately start descending the aircraft and get it, you know, onto profile to get it coming down so that, you know, we can get oxygen back into the cabin. Because the real design of those uh, oxygen masks in the back of the aircraft are really not to sustain life. It's you know to sustain life, but it's really not to breathe off of another short period it's, of time. Yeah, it's a very short period of time. It's really just designed to allow the aircraft to descend from a high altitude that there is no oxygen down to a breathable you know atmosphere. So, you know, that's really what I focus in on training. So now we're taking a single event and making it a multiple event with what they dealt with so the style factor is definitely an issue there and initially i'm, I'm sure the aircraft you know as, as i mentioned was very hard to control so you get two pretty massive things going on at the same time and you know maybe the little bit of delay in handling the engine failure is really because of the way we're, we're trained is all right analyze the rapid decompression and let's get that under control let's fly the aircraft as dr Steph mentioned and let's get this into a a breathable situation then we can fully analyze what we're really dealing with here and i think that's exactly what they did
3: that has to be the priority you know just just to keep consciousness and uh do whatever you can to do that and then okay now what else do we what happened here and take measures to try to fix the situation if possible all right well, you know what that means—getting to know you, getting to know all about you—and since the last episode, we've been busy doing stuff. I think, and let's see, maybe not. <laughs> maybe I know Dan and I've been busy doing stuff. Uh, Steph, what have you been up to? Uh,
6: I've been busy. Okay, uh, yeah, sure. Hold on, I'm just rearranging stuff here. Okay. okay. Um, yeah. So let's see where to start. When did we do this last show? Uh,
3: Saturday, Saturday morning. Okay. So well, uneventful.
6: You have been doing a lot of things. Yeah, I know. I had to remember where I needed to start off from. Um, uneventful weekend. Um, not a whole lot going on. It's been busy at work as is usual this time of year. So just trying to keep my uh, head above water there, treading water a little bit. Sometimes it feels like. But still had enough time to arrange some uh, some things outside of work. So, on uh, Wednesday this past week, I had the opportunity to meet up with Colonel Jeff, uh, the good-looking Captain Jeff, for breakfast. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. <Come> <laughs> um, something we were playing on for a little while. I've actually uh, I was talking to him. He's got uh, retirement coming up soon as well. He's definitely started the countdown. So, I've had a chance to fly with. Jeff, I wanted to fly on one of Nick's flights, but he snuck out of that uh, before I was able to. <laughs> so, I know. But I, I told Jeff, I was like, you know, it'd be fun to, to fly on one of your flights as a passenger before you retire. Colonel Jeff, that is. So he was looking because he comes through the Charlotte area quite frequently, but we weren't able to make schedules line up this month. But he said, hey, uh, this Wednesday morning, uh, I'm going to have like a three hour layover. Uh, would you have time for breakfast? It's pretty early. I said, well, it is early, and I'd have time for a short breakfast because, unfortunately, I do have to go to work. So we kind of arranged that. And um, so Wednesday morning, I got up super early. Uh, the technical details of how I uh, was able to meet him at the airport, I had to be there at 5 a.m. or so. So hey. even before his flight, he was flying from God, Raleigh to... King? I know, right? I'm so, He's so not right. that
4: handsome. <laughs>
6: <laughs> yeah, but he was paying for breakfast.
4: Oh, okay. So. Fair <laughs>
6: Um, so yeah, so I was there at five o'clock in the morning, which was super early. It was before his flight even left Raleigh-Durham, his very long flight from Raleigh-Durham to Charlotte, North Carolina, the Tar Heel tour there. Yeah, I know. I was like, you have that flight? That seems strange, but whatever. So uh, I had about hmm, over an hour to to kill in the airport very early in the morning. So got my Starbucks and I was just going to walk laps around the different uh, concourses and terminals just get a little bit of exercise in, keep myself awake and uh, start looking through Twitter. And I see a tweet from uh, this guy, Miami Rick. You might've heard of him. Yeah. Uh, we love and, Miami Rick. I know. <laughs> and the, the tweet was posted. <laughs> the Rickets, The Rickets are back. <laughs> it was posted at like one 30 in the morning local time. And it was about uh, something, a flight attendant of a flight that he was on had said, as uh, they were boarding the plane uh, with a destination of Charlotte. I was like, oh, really? Interesting. A red-eye flight from the West Coast arriving in Charlotte. So I uh, did some perusing of the interwebs and flight radar 24 and some uh, some sleuthing, some stalking. And there was one flight that fit the criteria that he might have been on. So looked a little bit closer. And oh, how convenient it is arriving at the gate adjacent to the one where Colonel Jeff is supposed to be arriving. Wow. I know. So <laughs> I was like, well, let's see what happens here. And, and within like, you know, a 20 minute time frame or something. So I walk over and I sit myself down there and the plane arrives and it's deplaning and lo and behold, off walks Miami Rick. So I had the pleasure of surprising uh, him a little bit.
3: Yeah. I bet uh, that was a surprise for him. Wasn't yeah, it? it really was. Yeah. yeah. Well,
6: but, the look on his face was, was pretty great. And he goes, <laughs> what are you doing? Where are you going? I was like, well, I'm actually not going anywhere. I'm just here to have breakfast with Colonel Jeff, who, oh, by the way, is, uh, on base to final right now and we'll be pulling into this gate in about 10 minutes if you've got time to join us for breakfast and he said well yeah actually I do have time on my uh, layover here so uh, we kind of sat down caught up a little bit and uh, about 15 minutes later Colonel Jeff walks off the off the plane takes a look at the two of us and makes kind of the same face of surprise that Rick had when he saw me sitting there. (laughs) and uh yeah that was really nice it was a nice pleasant surprise for everyone all all around so definitely worth getting up early in the morning and wait about 40 minutes to catch up over breakfast and just chat for a bit
3: yeah and if, um if you don't mind i'll use that uh, wonderful selfie the picture of you guys together it's fine with me I'll,
6: I'll check with with everyone else yeah. involved in the picture but okay. i'll let you know yeah but that should be fine i don't think it's an issue yeah all right excellent so, yeah my thanks to rick for posting something about his whereabouts and
3: and that was Wednesday, so... That was Wednesday. That was probably the last time that you were at the airport.
6: No. No? <laughs> Actually not. Yeah. So, And not because I was doing any flying myself around. Um, no, I, um, you know, it is the time of year to um, uh, take a look at how things are going um, status-wise for, for the airline that I fly on most frequently. And I was within, you know, less than 2,000 miles of the next level up. So I took a little mileage run flight to Baltimore, Washington and back yesterday, just after work.
3: Excellent. How was that? Uneventful. Good.
6: Yep. Sat there in my in seat 1A. Actually, I got into seat 1A on the, the flight up there and there was a um, couple that boarded very late um, but had flight uh, seats not together. So I, I did the nice thing and switched to 3C next to the nice lady with Aww. the very small dog under the seat who was very pleasant. And on the way back, back in 1A.
3: Excellent. Very cool. Anything Mm -hmm. else? I'm sure there must be more.
6: Uh, There's more. It's it's upcoming stuff, though. Um, Mm -hmm. I'll be back at the airport tomorrow (laughs)
3: because it
6: never ends. Um, Dispatcher Mike and I are going to see if we can remember how to handle Midwestern winters over the weekend on Sunday. It's Mm -hmm. not going to be pretty.
3: So uh, what are are you going to go out uh, like? Snow skiing, or um, uh,
6: no, we're gonna attend a ice professional, skating. professional American football game. Oh, ah. in the lovely town of Green Bay, Wisconsin.
3: Uh huh. Now, tell the people that aren't familiar with gridiron football, American National Football League, and the Green Bay Packers, and <laughs> they have a place, probably one of the northernmost locations. Well, yeah,
6: I don't know how they compare with like Buffalo or. Um. Trying to think who That's else. That's right. Buffalos
3: is outside too, right? Yeah, they're it's, outside.
6: Yeah. Okay. Um. So you know, Green is further north. Green yeah. Bay is further north. Okay, I was I'd have to look at a.
3: That's what I was thinking too. It is really and okay. uh, oh and, yeah. yeah,
6: it is not by a ton, but by a little bit.
3: But it's open. Mm. It's not like one of those domes where it's, it's not a dome. Degrees. It's not. <laughs> it's not
6: a dome. It is. It is not climate controlled. It is outdoors, and it right now the forecast is calling for uh, eighteen degrees Fahrenheit, but sunshine. They took the snow out of the forecast.
3: Oh. Okay. A little
6: well, like ten mile an hour winds.
3: So what would that be? That would be um, in Celsius, it's minus, like, minus I don't
6: know, four like
3: five. Yeah, it's gotta be a minus five or below minus someone, five. Someone is do 23. The math so um so like minus, minus eight. Mi- probably about don't minus don't ten. Yeah, maybe not minus know. ten. That would be close. Celsius. I think. Yeah. That's cold. Yeah. yeah. Any wind? About forecast? ten miles an hour. Oh, it's going to be very comfortable yeah. there.
6: It's going to be very nice and brisk. I'm sure we'll see some diehard fans, you know, just no coat at all, chest painted for mm-hmm. you know Green Bay.
3: Colors yeah, like and Mike, and he going to do that.
6: Yeah, I think so. Okay, I, I said I'm coming in my full like ski and snow gear.
3: Uh huh. So. <laughs> well, that should be fun. I can't wait to hear about that. Yeah, it's going to be
6: it's going to be a lot of fun. Looking forward to it. Good. So, and I, I'm not cheering for the Packers. I'll be cheering for the the Bears.
3: Oh, the Bears. That's right. The yeah. Bears. The, the Bears. bears.
6: <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but we're both excited to go to a uh, game at Lambeau field. It's kind of one of those, uh, it's an, it's an older stadium and, uh, an experience in and of itself.
3: So that's what i hear. Uh, that's what I hear. Very cool. Well, that sounds like fun. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that. It may be
5: the most Northern outdoor stadium that's exposed to really cold weather in the United States. I think it is. But I think it is. I mean, uh, you know, New England.
6: Where's New England? Yeah, that was
5: the other one. It is further south. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, of course, Wisconsin's right next to Minnesota, which International Falls is known as the coldest spot on the lower 48, which is the next state over. So I would imagine that's probably the coldest uh, next to Chicago. Yeah, the uh, Vikings though they have a dome, yeah, dome yeah. now. Yeah, Vikings is dome. Yeah, uh, you know yeah. although Washington is further north, Washington State, which where the Seahawks, oh, block, okay, but that is actually a uh, a temperate area because of the Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that there's a n- more northern uh, outdoor stadium in the U.S.
3: Excellent. Well, isn't that fascinating? Seattle, I know. Yeah.
5: Well, yeah, Seattle's, but outdoor—that's exposed that those type of it's, conditions. It's
6: outdoor; it's just not exposed to the same. Yeah, right. you are
5: talking that's about some, that's what, harsh yes, weather Seattle, conditions, yeah. harsh weather conditions.
3: Well, anyway, that's uh, that sounds like fun, in quotation marks. Um, <laughs> Nick, sir, how have you been? Are you still awake?
4: I uh, need just. Okay. um we've just endured six weeks of. Uh, political campaigning and had, uh, an election. Uh, you guys do it for about two years. How do you live through that? You I don't ignore it. On the news. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that's just happened. Um, that's, uh, of great interest to people, uh, who are keen on leaving the European Union. Uh, personally, um, I had a very nice, uh, um, photographic uh, task to do uh, photographing a um, scenting dog trial which uh, was in a big uh, stadium that talking of stadiums that was good um, I had a lot of pictures to process and I'm still working on them because when I came back I had to uh, produce a plain tail uh, I had to do something else, but oh, golly, I've, I've just been so busy. Anyway, I've still got those pictures to finish off, but they'll be done shortly. Um, and uh, organize uh, the paperwork for the new motor, which is actually coming next week. I was hoping it would be here this week, but uh, it's actually arriving next week, so I'll be picking it up on Tuesday. Oh, but that's so really it for me. You'll I have something to talk good. about uh, on the next show. that. Not aviation-related again, but uh, who cares? Yeah, who cares? Yeah, early start tomorrow off uh, umpiring a uh, bowls match. Oh,
3: very good. Oh, really? This time of year? I didn't know you? Indoors. Had... Oh, okay. interesting.
6: Climate-controlled stadiums, apparently. Exactly
3: right. <laughs> and the and the bowling dome. Yes. <laughs> um, all right. Um, Dana. Jeff. What's up, dude? What's up? Long time no see. Yeah, just saw you the other day.
5: Yeah, no kidding. Omaha. Omaha. Yeah, actually, we had uh, a very astute, very um, smart listener that happened to look at our schedules. uh, And pardon me if I say it wrong, but Tubatoni, um, if that's correct, uh, noticed it and put a Slack alert out and said, hey, it looks like Dana and Jeff are going to be handing off uh the aircraft so i'm in omaha and jeff is going to hand off the aircraft to me and son of a gun he was absolutely correct so um it was the absolute joy to see uh, jeff at the uh, at the air, at the airport of course i watched him taxi in on two and a half wheels um uh, coming around the corner that is not true that's not true that's at all my norm. normal taxi speed that's right exactly no it, it was it was absolute pleasure um i don't know are you gonna are you gonna Post our photo, uh, the edited photo. Yeah,
3: Jeff? I will. Well, I, I'm going to do the unedited right now. Here, let me share the screen. Don't worry, folks. We're wearing clothing. Um, application window. Yeah, but it has logos. Oh, on. I was hoping for uh, I don't care. This is. We borrowed some other people's um uniforms. This is not the Acme uniform.
4: Which this is which? <laughs>
3: So, oh, is Aww. that is that showing up right there? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah it is. Nice. whose
4: hat have you borrowed, Dana? Uh,
5: I don't know. It was, it was a captain's hat I found laying around.
4: <laughs> they just happened to I be like on the, the jet bridge, bridge there
5: here. for, but, for it, what's, what's, photo ops. What, photo ops, and of course, the four stripes. Both of us have four stripes on, which is really. I did borrow somebody's jacket for that one because uh-huh. we were flying That's together. Very smart. <laughs> yeah. No, so uh, nice it, was, it was it was it it's a great photo. Uh, um, it was just an absolute pleasure, and I I, I think you forgot about it too because I came down the jetway and you look over and you're like, huh? <laughs> I completely <laughs> what are you forgot.
3: I've <laughs> completely forgot that you were going to be there, and then
6: this is the season for. Uh, I say, Dana. I go, oh, Dana, the people you know at the airport. Huh? <laughs> exactly. Yeah,
3: he looked at me and said, "Who the hell's that?" <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm getting old. Yeah, I can't remember a lot of things.
6: Looks <laughs> like when you see someone you know in a location that you're not expecting to see them, although seeing is what you guys do for work. That really shouldn't be too unexpected, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it always me a
5: little bit. And, and funny enough, you know, seeing talking about seeing people, I'm not expecting to see. I went to go down to see Jeff, and as I went, you know, to to go down the jetway, uh, a lady almost walked right into me, and I looked at her, and she looked at me, and like, Gail, Dana, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, she lives there. She's actually one of my my close buddies. That uh, uh, anytime you've heard me go down to Panama City. Uh, my friend uh, that owns a condo down there and also rents it all, by the way, not that I'm, pu- pu- uh, not that I'm uh, advertising that. Uh, anyways, um, and I go scuba dive with him, a uh, longtime scuba diving buddy, um, Gail, and uh, got off the airplane, his wife. So we had a very nice conversation. So J- Captain Jeff brought in a very close friend of mine without even realizing and knowing it. Oh, I knew um, that. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, she was sitting right behind you in seat 1A. Uh, anyways. um. So that was about it. I flew a three-day, had a, a, a F-16 uh, FO that uh, is flying in the guard. He was actually very uh, very pleasurable to fly with, and we uh, enjoyed the three-day trip. We had a longer layover in Houston where I had met up with a, uh, it wasn't an official APG meetup. I actually posted posted uh, that I would be out in Houston, but um, it was during the day, and it wasn't an official APG meetup, but my buddy, Pat. Uh, garrigan who flies for a uh, uh a southwestern uh, company maybe name that uh so we we uh we went ahead and what's that say anyways uh, we went ahead and gun and uh, got together for lunch and discussed uh, how life was going we were actually former uh instructors at uh, an, another airline together um and so we've known each other a very long time uh, he actually went to boeing boeing Boeing. He Boing. worked there as an instructor. Boing.
3: Boeing. Boing. Boeing.
5: And, uh, Boing. Boeing. <laughs> Boeing. Boeing. Um, and then.
4: We're going to get some <laughs> instruction on that today, I think. Oh, yeah. I yes. Think. Yes.
5: So uh, he worked uh, over there. And so he caught up on a lot of things. And his wife currently still works for the company. So got a little insight as to uh, what's going on there at uh, the Boeing company um, and uh, his, his company. You know what? He, he's one of those guys that, that did a mid-career change, went from flying back to uh, civilian world, working uh, a nine-to-five type of job, and uh, his dream was always to come back and fly. So that's what he's doing, and he's loving his life. And so he's, uh, it, was, it was very nice meeting up with him and having a very nice lunch. So that was about it. As far as flying goes, it was an un- uneventful trip, although going into Omaha the night before, Remember when I told everybody about the airplane that I had the little issue with, with the the burning smell in the flight deck Mm -hmm. that I diverted with, um, precautionary landing? Um, That was the same airplane I got the distinct pleasure of flying again. Um, And uh, Christine, as I like to call the airplane, uh, didn't act up that day. So it was, uh, and Christine is in reference to an old, a late 70s, early 80s movie about a car named Christine that was, possessed. So uh, that's where I named that airplane. So anyways, uh, it was absolutely fine. And we had a a very nice trip. So Uh, oh, and of course, as you know, we're we are subjected to DOT inspections every once in a while. And I got a personal inspection as well as my FO, which was unusual that we both got selected for the uh, DOT drug screening, uh, drug screening, a selection process uh, on our last leg into uh, the home base last night at uh, 10 o'clock in the evening.
3: So that was a pleasure. That may have been my fault. Sorry. Probably was. Yeah. It was an anonymous <laughs>
4: tip. <laughs> it was. <laughs>
3: you really and, shouldn't and, check this guy.
5: And I gave them the anonymous tip. So anyways, um, Jeff, just be watching it. That's all I have to say. Anyways. Um, <laughs> Okay. That's it. That's all I have to say. It was, it it was, it was a a fun week of flying enjoyable and uh, pretty much uneventful.
3: Okay. Uh, let's see. Last week, Saturday morning is when we recorded the last episode. Four Oh three, um, started a little bit of editing on the show, but not a lot. And because I had to go to, uh, I sing on Saturday and Sundays, although I didn't sing on Sunday because I ended up picking up a two day green slip Sunday, Monday, and I'm thinking, you know, I'll be able to re- uh, edit the show uh, on on my two-day green slip. And no, I didn't didn't have enough time to do anything on it, actually. But uh, I don't even remember where I went uh, overnight. I think it was... I don't remember, but that's okay. Um, and then um, went out on my normally scheduled trip, which was uh, on Tuesday. And I just got back today, Friday, a four-day trip. So... I, I wasn't really thinking about it when I picked up the green slip um and then after I started flying I realized I was going to be flying 6 days in a row. So um haven't done that in a while. Yay. Um, yeah. Is that why you look so grumpy? Yeah, and that's why I am so grumpy. <laughs> um but actually the uh, second day of the of the 4-day uh was uh, it was a 30-hour layover. Um so I was that that was the day I ended up getting the Show all edited and published and all that jazz. There's so. nothing
5: else to do in Birmingham.
3: Not a lot to do in Birmingham, that's true. Alabama. Yep. Not not England. Um and uh yeah. So just did a lot of flying and uh weather for the most part, except for today. Uh today was very uh rainy, low ceilings, low visibility, um everywhere I went. Started off in Omaha, that wasn't bad, but getting to Atlanta was uh, moderate to heavy rain and uh, low ceilings of is. And then we went to Memphis. It was a little bit better, still low ceilings. And then back to Atlanta, it was starting to improve still a little bit of rain, but not bad. So good practice for this, the weather this time of year.
5: And Jeff, I have to mention one thing. Uh-huh. My first officer is a second generation. I forgot to mention this second generation Acme pilot, his dad, um, you and I both are moving up in seniority because his dad's retiring on the 21st of this month on the triple seven. Yeah. And I helped him uh, get an early booking on the jump seat so he could be on the jump seat on his dad's last flight from L.A. to Atlanta. So oh, neat. Oh, that's yeah, great. That, that was really that. Yeah. I used some uh, some of my friends and connections to to make that happen. And uh, we worked that out for him. So his dad's retiring. But you and I both as a result of moving up another number.
3: Yay. <laughs> okay,
5: I can tell your excitement.
6: He's not nearly ex- as excited about it as you are, Dana. Oh yes,
5: well <laughs>
2: only because
6: as, it's gets that it, much closer to well, retirement as well.
5: As as the stuff flows downhill, it becomes proportionally larger, so that it affects me more than it does Captain Jeff. Yes, so it benefits me more.
3: Yeah. Oke doke. I think that is. Oh wait. Nick, am I supposed to do something with this uh, in the intro folder from St. Benedict School?
4: Well, I thought you might like to, but uh, I don't have editorial uh, control over this. You do. I don't either. But um, I I just noticed this
3: over in the uh, column in our intro folder, So, and it looks like some audio.
4: So I'm going to play it. I actually haven't played this yet, so is it okay? All right. It came as a surprise to us both. It was uh, very nice of uh, Rob. Well, let's
3: see what uh, we're all going to hear this for the first time together right now. Woohoo!
0: Hi, Captain Jeff. This is a special message from St. Benedict Aviation Club. Dear Captain Jeff. Captain Dana. Captain Nick. And Dr. Seth. We hope that you have a very
2: Merry Christmas. Blue skies. Tailwinds. And unlimited visibility.
4: Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Yay! That's awesome. Oh, that's I love
2: that. <laughs> thank
4: you, oh, Rob. Um Yeah, and thank you kids from yes. the Aviation Group. And that's they marvelous.
3: and you, you you all over there don't normally say Merry Christmas, do you? You usually say Happy
4: Christmas, right? Oh, but no, we have multiple oh. varieties. Merry Christmas. I thought Christmas maybe they just did that for wonderful. us. Okay. Oh, nope. wow. That was uh that was well, great. You have not cornered the Merrys, you know. Well...
6: we just disregarded the happies.
4: Yes. yes. Yeah.
3: Okay. Well, that's very cool. Uh, thank you, Rob. Um, your kids are wonderful. and
4: uh, Yeah. So cool. Very kind oh, of you, you to do
3: that. What a wonderful Christmas greeting.
6: We from hope you all have a very Merry Christmas as well.
3: We do. Absolutely. Very yes, happy New Year. We'll be breaking
4: up before long. Lucky blighters. <laughs>
3: <laughs> blighters? Okay. Yes. Um, Let's see. Well, why don't we do... A quick uh, coffee fun thing so uh, you all can abandon me while I, I go over that look they're already leaving I haven't even started Wait,
5: hold, it on, hold on is this true Jeff what's that Sunday
6: uh, what? Sunday Sunday Sunday
5: Sunday I- this what? coming Sunday what
3: what are you talking about something about an anniversary uh, oh yeah how did, how did you know that? Did was was somebody say something in the chat Yes, really? somebody oh that's God.
5: right on top
3: of it. Oh, that. he is. Very good. Yes. Um, my anniversary um, of employment at Acme Airlines on Sunday will be 31 years. Congratulations. Thank you very much. That's awesome. Yay. We Appreciate need a round of
6: applause for that. Yay. Thank
3: you. Okay. Nick doesn't care, obviously. No, he left. He, he didn't left. hear that at all. Yeah, he yeah, has he no idea what's, what's going on. I hope he feels bad, too. He doesn't. No, he doesn't. I don't <laughs> I <don't>, well, okay. <laughs> it's time for the coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea, and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. A cup. Okay. Coffee Fund is what we do, or what a lot of you all do out there who want to support the show financially, and that's why we sing the our version of the Java Jive. Uh, so, if you're interested in helping out, uh, supporting the show financially, please check out the Coffee Fund. A lot of great people over there. A couple different ways to do it. One is the classic method, and since the last episode, Alistair Kerr. Uh, sent in his recurring contribution Thank you very much, sir And the other way to do it Is to become a patron of the show Via Patreon.com And since the last episode We have a new producer, Reed And so thank you, Reed, for that And then Robert Fairbairn you know, You've heard us refer to this gentleman And I use that term very, very lightly
6: He just joined the chat room Oh,
3: did he? Oh, whoa, I have to be careful now He has been a, a patron for quite some time and he just basically doubled his pledge. Well, you didn't have to do that, Dick, but we do appreciate it. So, yay, he is a, uh, what do we call, a, an assistant senior executive producer now. So thank you very much, Rob, for that. And if you want to join this great group of folks, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com coffee, and you'll learn all about how you can do it. And now, it's time for your feedback.
6: Incoming message.
3: Starting off with item uno from Steve. Hi APG crew. Interesting event I found in the Aviation Herald. I thought you might want to cover in the show. So it gives us a link, and it is in regard to um, a Air France Airbus A340-300 performing flight 681 from Bogota, Colombia to. Paris-Charles-de-Gaulle, France, with 219 passengers and 10 crew, was accelerating for takeoff from Bogota's runway 13 right before the takeoff roll. The runway anemometer showed winds from 211 degrees at 1 knot. During the takeoff roll, the winds changed to a headwind component of about 13 knots. At 138 knots indicated airspeed, Uh, let's see, um, the captain began to rotate the aircraft for takeoff when the winds changed to a tailwind component of 12 knots. The indicated airspeed reduced by six, the aircraft became airborne after liftoff. The winds further changed to a 25 knot tailwind component and a downdraft component of four knots while the indicated airspeed reduced to 128 knots indicated six seconds after the main gear left the ground, a wind shear oral warning occurred three times. A red wind shear warning from the flight management, I don't know what the GEC stands for, FMGEC. What's that, Nick? Do you...
4: uh, flight Management uh, Guidance something. Oh, the,
3: the FMGEC.
4: It's the flight management computer. Okay. I can't remember exactly what the initials are.
3: And was displayed
4: on the primary yeah, flight Guidance display. and envelope computer, oh, I think. Okay, very good.
3: Uh, so the wind warning was on the primary flight displays for 15 seconds. The captain held the pitch attitude between 11 and 13. The aircraft remained stabled, stable, <laughs> uh, stable at five feet. AGL, the captain increased nose up inputs until alpha protection activated for four seconds. The tailwind component then began to decrease. The indicated airspeed began to increase and the aircraft began to climb again, crossing the runway end at 58 feet. AGL and the subsequent climb profile had the aircraft pass all obstacles with sufficient margin. 21 seconds after becoming airborne, the wind shear warning stopped at 193 feet above ground. A pitch of 13 degrees nose up. Five seconds later, at 258 feet above ground, the indicated airspeed increased through 145, which had been computed as V2. The aircraft climbed without further incident crew reported the wind shear to ATC. This report prompted the next crew to wait for three minutes before commencing their takeoff, and they continued to Paris without further incident. Now, again, this occurred on the 18th of August, 2017, and this is a final report from the Bureau de... Uh, what I don't know exactly how to say that. I think I have a um, sound clip somewhere that has them pronouncing it the BEA the French um investigative uh authority I think I don't think they were a yep, regulatory right. Okay um they did not release a formal conclusion of their investigation report but following lessons learned from the occurrence and then they go through and talk about lessons learned management of risk of wind shear at takeoff uh prevention oriented strategy uh, they go into a lot of detail here I won't read the whole thing um, assessment of wind shear risk at the Bogota El Dorado airport. Um, anyway, I, you know, honestly, I didn't have a chance to read all of this. Did anybody get a chance to go into it a little bit more thoroughly?
4: I speed read it. Okay. And actually I I went on to, um, the, uh, Aviation Herald uh, link and looked at that. Uh Um, I, it was uh it was a nasty situation i'll tell you why because the crew already had uh toga selected for their takeoff so they're at the maximum power uh, they could had, had they had something in reserve that they could have engaged when they realized they were in wind shear um, then you know they perhaps might have uh not lost so many heartbeats uh it happened at a kind of a sort of no-go you can't stop at this point point. it would be very unwise to attempt to stop it just basically as you're lifting off because you know then you're going to go off the end of the runway and the aircraft despite the um the change in wind direction and the strength and the downdraft uh didn't actually touch of the runway again, it managed to maintain its performance, and I put that down to uh, Airbus's uh, angle of attack limiting system which allows the pilot to go full back stick if he feels it's necessary and uh, know that he will reach uh, absolute cl max the max maximum of the lift uh, the the lift the wing can give him without going any further and risking stalling which is something you'd always be very conscious of if you didn't have this protection you know you'd want to perhaps come to stick shaker but have it be very reluctant to go beyond that um, whereas in an airbus you can you can go right to backstick the, back stick. Uh, the uh, alpha protection system they call there is um, is locks the throttles at toga and it will select full power for you toga power uh, if um, you haven't already done it since they're already there they got no more out of that but it also prevents someone from retarding the throttles uh, un, you know, uh, in the unlikely event that they should think that's an appropriate action. Once you're in table lock, that's not going to work. The airplanes are stuck at full power until you disconnect the autothrust. Uh, and uh, I th- there were some comments here from some uninformed people um, in the Herald uh, commenting on the aircraft's uh, um, supposed lack of performance. And I'm just going to say that Bogota's a high, hot airfield. And if you're taking off at Max Paran, Max weight for that it really doesn't matter what aircraft you're in if you've got no more power available to you then um, you know <laughs> that you're going to be in exactly the same boat uh, because it doesn't matter how powerful your engines are if you've got them set to maximum and you've loaded the aircraft with so much weight that it's at its maximum takeoff performance for that runway you're going to be sitting exactly the same situation as this Airbus was so uh, it was just good that the Airbus uh, was able to prove that its uh, fly-by-wire protection systems were able to give the crew the confidence to do what they did to prevent the uh, aircraft settling back down onto the runway again, and that the aircraft eventually had the performance to achieve all the gates that you're legally required to do so after takeoff, despite this very strong uh, wind shear it went into. So, yes, Dana.
5: I was going to say I, I took the liberty of reading this as well, um, and my biggest takeaway on this uh, beyond the performance of the aircraft, because, you know, once you get into wind shear, obviously, you know, you can push the, the engines up through, uh, in in our case, up through the gates and, and get as much power as the you know, humanly, well, mechanically possible, not humanly possible uh, from the airplane and and fly through the windshield as we're taught and told to do so. But the biggest thing I'm taking away from this is, is that I'm, I'm very happy that we fly here uh, in, in, in the country that we do because the, the, uh, a lot of information was missed here because of the, the, the language barriers. Um, And I was reading that they, um, you know that they were the the controllers were, were transmitting in Spanish and they were transmitting the information, but because Air France wasn't speaking Spanish and didn't understand what they were saying, uh, the information was kind of lost in translation, as one would say. Um, and also, you know, the technology at the airport isn't quite as good as is what we would have here at most airports here in the states either. And that is, you know, we have the the ability for the wind shear uh, uh, warning systems that I don't think is really Particularly present at this ear at this. You airport. mean like the
3: uh, the facilities, uh, like at the airport? It's had a low level wind shear. Yeah, um, exactly. Systems. Yeah, exactly
5: correct. So, I you know even even though the air traffic controllers were actually giving out some of the information to other aircraft, it was in Spanish. So thus the Air France folks didn't understand what was being said, and thus really didn't understand what they were getting into because it wasn't being directly reported to them, or for that matter, you know, and I think at one point it says, uh, you know, that they didn't request the information, if I remember correctly. I read this uh, several days ago.
3: Mm -hmm. Um, But since the incident, they now are required by a company, NOTAM, to get, uh, to ask the controllers for the wind at the two thresholds of the runway used and to take into account... The most unfavorable wind before takeoff. So this is a high altitude, as as uh, Nick mentioned. It's hot. It's August. Um, I'm assuming it's mountainous as well. And I didn't. Know, I don't know. It didn't. I don't think it stated that there was a thunderstorm or thunderstorm activity in the area. But I wouldn't be surprised if.
6: No, and and Gustav in the uh, chat room asks what why does wind sure occur? So thunderstorm activity is one reason. If there's a front approaching, that's another reason. Um temperature inversions could do it potentially. Um so mountainous regions can sometimes have temperature inversions like that. And then um Mountain anything wave. where you have mount well, yeah, and, and uh Anything that's going to disrupt the airflow, so obstruction somewhere nearby, surface
3: obstructions. So yeah, it's either it's going to be a, a change in direction or a change in speed or speed. both. Both, yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, so apparently uh, the, the data, the, inform- the wind data at four runway thresholds, uh, the controllers have that uh, information available, but they did not give this to the crew in the takeoff clearance. And more generally, this information is not systematically communicated. The investigation showed that this data, indicating a continuing difference in wind speed and direction between thresholds 1-3 and 3-1 at the time of the event, was the only data which could have warned of a wind shear risk. So now, as I said, uh, the uh, Air France is requiring the crews to get the information, the wind information, from both ends of the runway so that something like this doesn't occur again.
5: And And that's almost like a poor man's wind shear advisory. Yeah, it is. It really is.
4: I mean, it's so, a pretty dramatic change, isn't it? The guys mm-hmm. had effectively calm wind at the threshold when they started rolling. As they got to the point where they were going to rotate and lift the nose off, they had about 11 knot of headwind at the liftoff point, which isn't much beyond that. It has swung to a 13 knot tailwind. That is a, hummus, a 23-knot change of uh, wind speed over the wing. And uh, shortly after takeoff, they got to about like five feet. By that time, the tailwind had increased to 23 knots. I wow. mean, that's, a, that's an, a humongous change. I've never Huge. heard yeah. of
3: anything like that. <laughs> yeah.
4: Yeah, I think it's incredible.
3: It is.
6: Uh, so... And- Say you had some of this, so so hypothetical situation here for the uh, airline pilots and the the bunch. Um, Say you had some of this information, but um, perhaps you uh, requested the uh, wind information or had uh, uh, what you believe to be current stuff. But perhaps this was a possibility of experiencing some of this wind shear, even after you make your go decision. Uh, What would you do differently in this case? In terms of
3: well yeah as, as nick mentioned they were already basically at their right. maximum speed right. so i mean their maximum thrust so there's thrust. nothing really you could do there but if we if we were using a reduced thrust takeoff uh we would uh, you know go directly to whatever the a maximum allowable mm-hmm. thrust uh would would be if you knew the yeah. the one one direction of takeoff was going to be more favorable than the other then you would taxi to the other end of the runway and use that, you know, you
6: ever calculate direction. your VR differently? You do rotate speed.
3: Yep. Yeah. We, uh, we add basically up to 20 knots of, um, speed to our V rotate. And then, um, if you encounter a wind shear, then you keep the nose on the runway until what? 2000 feet from the end of the runway. Uh, basically. Correct. And then you, you start your rotation regardless of what your speed is. Um, so there are a lot of different things that we look at, um, you know. in when we know that that uh, the wind shear is a threat, and of course, if we if if we know it's going to be a real, <laughs> a serious threat, then we just don't take off. But this crew didn't have any uh, any idea that mm-hmm. this is what about they this is what they were about to encounter.
5: Sure. No, no warning whatsoever. Yeah. No. I mean, they, they had no clue. And uh, again, you know, the, the language barrier here, I think, played into that as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, t- to answer your question, Dr. Steph, you know, that's where we're fortunate in, in the technology mm-hmm. that we have here. We, we do have the low-level wind shear advisory. We have, uh, you know, mandatory ports by the control tower that if they're getting, uh, you know, difference in winds based on different you know quadrants of the of the airport then they have to report that to us yeah and
6: and my question was just to to let people know that you know we talked a little bit about this in this case where they didn't have the uh the heads up the warning that there was anything going on unusual with the winds or wind sheared there wasn't anything differently that they could do but if you do have that information there are things that you can do to to be prepared yes potentially correct yeah
4: Okay. The uh, wind shear warning worked well, didn't it? I mean, it, it did. actually gave it to them. Yeah, they got a a a wind shear oral warning occurred three times, and a red wind shear warning from the FMGC was displayed for 15 seconds. Uh, and it occurred six seconds after the main gear left the ground, so they didn't look like they got a wind shear ahead warning, but they certainly got a wind shear warning when they started encountering it. Well,
5: let me ask you this, because we're inhibited on on uh, from eighty knots and then above one hundred knots, depending on which system you're looking at, until at least nose gear extension. Is that the same thing with the Airbus? So we will it give you a warning
4: throughout uh, the
5: whole takeoff roll.
4: I'd have to get my manuals out, which I no longer have available to me, sadly. Um, okay. I mean, you certainly can get a windshield warning on the radar uh so it wouldn't surprise me if we the wind shear ahead was available before takeoff and um, I, if,
3: if i'm not mistaken that the predictive warning uh, wind shear warning system the one that actually uses radar to scan ahead i you know if there were no thunderstorm cells in the area and it was just okay. some other phenomenon that was causing the wind shear it wouldn't have Said anything, and in this case, that's true. The uh, the predictive warning system, the PWS, did not detect
4: the wind shear. Right, that's true. But we we also don't know what the crews saw on their radar uh, as they lined up. So true. we don't know if they were actually looking at a thunderstorm cell that could cause a microburst. Yeah. Um, so yeah.
5: I, I didn't see it here, but there's no uh, there's no um, current conditions at the airport, so we don't know if it was raining. Uh, other mm-hmm. than the, what the wind was doing, we don't know what the actual tower was. Right, So, you know, we're, we're kind of wagging at this because, well, I mean, let's think of it. Uh, most mountainous terrain airports, this is not an uncommon thing to happen, even on CAVU, beautiful, perfectly clear days. Kavu being clear, unlimited visibility, right? So... um Visibly unlimited, clear, clear and, and un- visibility, unlimited. and gavu. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this is, the, for example, uh, some place that Jeff, you and I have flown in quite a bit is Denver. Mm-hmm. I mean, that it's uh, on the front range. You can get the winds coming over the top of those the mountains, and it causes quite a bit of uh, you know rolling type of wind. Mm-hmm. Um, Not that you can see it. Uh, but it's you know the, the you know as mountain wave as I mentioned earlier. So that's these are all possible uh, possibilities. But without having that uh, meter or TAF or anything that tells us what exactly was going on at the airport, we're just we're just kind of guessing into the wind here. Yeah, as true, perhaps just to
4: finish up here, um, I saw with amusement that the uh, they reported the wind shear as they climbed out. And this report prompted the next crew to wait for three minutes before commencing their takeoff. <laughs> like, if you're going to go behind a heavy, you're going to be waiting for two or three minutes anyway. Right. So I'm thinking, oh, it doesn't really mean much to yeah, me. I was thinking, well, what? <laughs> I was like, why three minutes? It doesn't even... <laughs> start,
6: they reported when you start the timer. Yeah. Three,
3: three I, I, I thought the same thing. It was like, just three minutes? I don't think it's going to make any That's difference it. in three minutes' time.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: anyway. Kind of weird. Oh, well. Okay. Um, moving on to, uh, item dos, um, from Mike O'Dorney via Facebook. He has some questions regarding terminology. One, weather veining. Captain Nick, UK, mentioned the term weather cocking. I learned that term in the U.S. Air Force, and it comes from many weather vanes in the shape of a rooster. Is it still used at all in the U.S.? I've not heard the term in the U S but I have seen those rooster weather veins, you know, so I kind of understand, you know, where, where that term comes from, but no, I mean, that's not something that I've commonly hear you stuff.
6: Mm, no. Yeah, Dana, weather no. Is the yeah. Weather veining is the usual term here.
3: Yep. Um, And, and look, I was good Steph. I didn't play that sound, that uh, sound clip. No, uh, thank you. Yes. Uh, you kind
6: of know that. No. <laughs> It'll, he'll fix that. one from Grand
3: Cayman. <laughs> yes.
6: Bahamas.
5: Yeah. No, uh,
3: Grand Cayman.
6: Oh.
3: Yeah. Uh, tarmac is the second terminology uh, that he is asking about. Officially, in the U.S., tarmac is tar-covered macadam or macadam? Macadam. Yes. Macadam. It's
4: someone's name.
3: Uh, macadam is a series of rock layers providing both good drainage as well as strong, a strong surface. To support heavy planes. The tar layer was about a quarter inch thick and pure tar without any sand or gravel mixed in. Many ferry fields had acres of tarmac, and it was still around in the eighties. Most airports nowadays are concrete or asphalt. Asphalt is usually a petroleum product mixed with gravel or sand and applied in layers, often reaching a thickness of many inches. Okay. Um Oh, is tarmac an official term nowadays or is the legal term hard surface? Hmm, I don't know the answer to that one. Neither do I.
5: Neither do I, but I do know we call it tarmac.
6: Yeah, we do. Prepared surface. Yeah. Perhaps. I see that a lot in reports. Yeah. Aircraft departure. Part of uh, the per- prepared, prepared surface. surface. <laughs> yes.
5: The tarmac. I mean, we we generally refer to that area that we're talking about as the ramp. Mm hmm.
6: In news reports, they will refer to any area of prepared surface at an airport as the tarmac,
4: tarmac. generally. Mm-hmm. It's kind Whereas of we often call it the apron. Or the apron.
3: Um, of course, journalists refer to every prepared surface as a runway.
6: <laughs> oh, that too. It's either tarmac or runway, and it's usually neither. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah.
3: Uh, let's see. I know it's often used as a nickname to describe all the non-grass, dirt part of an airport, but that has that evolved, evolved like Kleenex or Xerox to a generic term. I believe it has. Almost actually. certainly. Yes.
6: Yeah, I think everyone would understand.
3: Yeah. So. Item three. Uh, I was listening to a tower recording at of or at Atlanta, which tends to have plenty of Delta Airlines flights. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, the plane reported taxiway Dixie. <laughs> Here we go. I would assume that was a substitute for delta. Occasionally I hear the World War 2 phonetic alphabet, Able, Baker, Charlie, Dog, which I assume is still allowed. Well, we don't we use an yeah. av- the aviation phonetic. Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, etc. Uh so now, here's the deal. <laughs> um a- apparently when I was first hired 31 years ago, um I was kind of scratching my head on taxiway Dixie as well. And a lot of people explained to me, well, that's because we don't want the uh, Delta airlines folks getting confused when they tell them to turn right on taxiway Delta. And I'm thinking, Oh, that, okay. That that seems reasonable to me. And then I'm thinking, wait a minute. Every other airport that Dana and I fly (laughs) is, or any of us fly still have taxiway D or Delta. They don't, call it Dixie everywhere else uh, just in case a delta pilot might get confused so i think i, I, actually, I don't even you know, believe it anymore
6: <laughs> who's on who's on first i think it's just What's a tradition
3: on? and it's <laughs> the south and dixie is a it's term land of land of dixie yeah
5: I, i'm just very very fortunate because that doesn't confuse me as much as if we had instead of taxiway alpha it was taxiway acme because if it was taxiway acme
3: oh that would
4: be great mm. you guys
3: need to start calling that
4: <laughs> don't you mean taxiway acme <laughs>
3: yeah roger right on acme to uh run <laughs> whatever yeah so uh, as as time has gone on i've i've started thinking you know what that whole uh, that whole explanation of why in atlanta they call it taxiway dixie is Bogus. You
6: know, are there so many taxiways that they couldn't just rename the one that would be Delta, something
3: different? Just skip Delta completely. Yeah. No confusion. Yeah. But uh, no. (laughs) Um, Another question is regarding the compressor stall in a 777 out of LAX. The flight crew kept the gear down, which my guess would be conservative. If you're losing an engine, you are also losing part of your hydraulics, part of your electric power, and possibly sending loose engine parts everywhere, possibly through a wire or hose. If you raise the gear, you may not get it down again. Uh, You know better than me, so where am I thinking wrong? One of my flight instructors was flying off a carrier near Greece. After World War II, they were delivering a dozen PBYs to the Greek military. The chief pilot said, don't retract your gear. You might not get it down again. Well, I think in this case, uh, I thought we, maybe we didn't talk about it when we were talking about the Philippine um, Airlines. 777 that had the right engine failure uh, taking off out of LAX. We, I think, all believe what happened there was because it happened so quickly and immediately um, after rotating the nose for takeoff that the crew probably so involved with trying to, you know, figure out how to take care of the engine problem. uh, That was something that distracted them and the, you know, positive rate or positive climb or whatever your company uses as the cue for the other person to say gear up, uh, that probably didn't occur because of the, the the startle factor. And so when you don't hear positive rate, you're, you may forget to raise your gear. And then I think further into the uh, situation, they realized that the gear was still down and then they raised it. I don't think it had anything to do with, you know, keeping it down in case a piece of the engine hit something or other. But again, that's, that's my impression. What do you all think?
4: Yeah, I think it's quite important to get the gear up on cue because you don't really want to be climbing out single engine with all that drag hanging you down. And uh, we've all got pretty reliable uh, secondary methods of dropping the gear, uh, even if we've lost a hydraulic system. So um, you know, it's not, that isn't really uh, a concern for us. So it's good to get the gear up because uh, of the performance um, limitations of trying to get airborne and climb away uh, with uh, only one engine because there may be obstacles uh, in your flight path and you need that performance uh, uh, and that lack of drag to get the aircraft uh, away and above them. Uh, safely so uh, I, I think it was a crew not a crew, c- conscious crew decision and I, I certainly don't think any crew would uh, do that deliberately just because they were concerned they might not get it down again I agree um,
3: Dana, you want to take um, feedback number
5: three? Oh, sure <laughs> What was feedback that?
4: Three. <laughs> the uh, coaster stuck oh, to the stuck bottom, of the bottom. <laughs> glass and frightened the poop out of them. <laughs>
3: oh clean up on <laughs> aisle three clean up on three. <laughs>
5: clean up in jeff's chair because he wasn't sure what that was and scared him <laughs> no i didn't poop <laughs> thank you pretty much just checking <laughs> just checking. no more than double normal. check well he is that age you'd have to double check you, hey, hey. anyways um number three sean window shades i find it Interesting to consider all the arguments around why window shades are required to be up for takeoff and landing, in light of what seems to be inevitable future involving airliners with no passenger windows, as previously discussed several times on the show. Does that mean airplanes without passengers passenger windows would not be permitted in countries with window shade rules? Question marks. That is a Sean good question. From, Sean from Portland. That is a very good question.
6: So, uh, interesting, yesterday, I took that little jaunt to Baltimore, Washington, and back. Um, that was with American Airlines. And prior to, or as part of the safety briefing, uh, they did request that folks sitting in exit rows have window shades up for taxi takeoff and landing.
3: I seem to remember a long time ago. at I don't ACME. not that. They, yeah. I know. I think I remember hearing that a long, long time ago at ACME but I haven't heard it in, you know, in recent years at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a good point, you know, because we, we talked about and many people have subsequently, you know, chipped in and saying, you know, having the window shades open is an important safety thing because it helps you with the orientation of the airplane, you know, after you aboard or have some kind of a rejected landing or whatever. Um, uh and the fact that the, that we didn't consider that uh, the rescue crews coming to an airplane they want to see you know what's going on inside etc so what do you do with those airplanes that don't have windows supposedly not sure we're gonna, ever going to see that actually but um yeah probably I mean, not, but yeah, it'll be probably a, not. Of as as that.
4: Aircraft, it? a lot of them don't have a lot of windows yeah or maybe you can. i have- mean
5: i guess we do have those now though there's just no passengers on them yeah and You're that's right. in cargo aircraft
3: I think that's what Nick Mm -hmm. was saying. Everybody was talking over everybody else, I think.
4: Isn't that what you said, Nick? Yeah, that's right. But uh, I, my feeling is that if the regulator wants you to be able to see outside an aircraft and you've decided not to install windows, you'll have some sort of camera system instead. And he will insist on that being um, running off a, an essential buzz and available to crew in the event of emergency, blah, blah, blah. So um, if you if he feels you'll need a view outside, then you need to invent one, even if it's a periscope that you stick out the roof.
5: Yeah. You no, know, <laughs> To answer your question, Sean, in my my perspective, is that if you take a look at the new fancy technology that's out there, i.e., for example, in the uh, 787, uh, they have the automatic tinting windows with no window shades. I don't know the answer to this question, but this may be a possibility. Somebody that flies a 787 may know this. But in case of an emergency, does the flight attendant have the ability to flip a switch that Takes all of those windows that have now been blacked out per se electronically with with the uh, tinting windows, and flip it to be able to see right through, or you know, is it transparent enough that you can see through them good enough? So you know, I think the, I think the I way of the future.
4: Of hmm? I think I can answer part of that, Dana. It I don't think they're completely black when they go black, but uh, they're pretty much uh, um, obscured and i'm almost certain the cabin crew can alter the entire cabin's uh settings all in one go. Steph you've so, ridden
3: you've been on a, a 787 right? Uh,
6: I have indeed. Yep.
3: So what do you know so about So as
6: that? you as you select uh more oops, more uh for so darker, uh, it will become all the way opaque to your view of it if you select it all the way down. All the way back up it becomes very translucent. Um my understanding is they can all be controlled by cabin crew all at the same time as well.
3: So, 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 so you're sitting there at the window and you want to see outside. You can
6: still push the, well, you can still push the button. And it'll come but back. Can up they, and like,
3: but obviously they can probably override it as well and say, you will not yeah, No soup for uh, you.
6: <laughs> yeah. I haven't tested it that much. Ah. If, if they all go dark, I uh, yeah. tend to comply. And usually it's fine because it's either night or a time when everyone is trying to sleep. Uh, so, that's just as much as you might want to see outside, sometimes you need to have a little respect for your fellow passengers as well.
5: Yeah, good luck. <laughs> so, but that answers the, the the question for the future part of this. I, I yeah. think that's the way the airliners are going to go with the tinted windows that can be uh, tinted and untinted uh, versus having an actual window shade.
3: Or use it, even better technology and just have the whole skin of the airplane completely
4: translucent. Ooh, I like it. That's glass airplanes. Nice idea.
6: (laughs) Doesn't sound fragile at all.
4: No. Well, they made glass on Concorde that could withstand the temperatures of Mac 2, I'm sure they can invent Mm -hmm. a tough glass airplane.
3: Now we don't have those people here anymore. They're all gone. Just
4: like the windows of that new uh, thing that Elon Musk built. And he demonstrated it the by the Yeah, the Tiger <laughs> Truck. It'll just be like that. Be really strong. Wow. Well, we need to the unbreakable glass. <laughs>
3: yes. Oops. Oops. Well, do, that must have been a fluke. Here, do it Do it on this one right here next to it. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. Oh, f-
6: yeah.
3: Oops. Um, yeah. S- Steph, you want to read uh, four?
6: Well, I would be happy to. Uh, number four is from. Uh, Christian base uh, in Richmond Hill, as we established last time. Uh, So he says, more on Snowbird's crash before the Atlanta air show. Uh, Greetings from the land of the RCAF Snowbirds. Uh, Thanks for covering the unfortunate loss of Snowbird 5 jet on October 13th, but the fortunate uh, successful ejection by Captain Kevin Domen Grenier, who was checked over in hospital and released having sustained only minor injuries. If you look at the subsequent photos released by the Snowbird's social media accounts showing him being released from the hospital, you'll notice that a female Snowbird is pushing him out in a wheelchair. What has mostly flown under the radar, no pun intended, is that 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 is Snowbird 2, Captain Sarah uh, Delaire, who, along with Captain Domin Grenier, form the first ever married couple to be part of the same Snowbird's flying formation. Dominique Grenier pilots on the second line astern while Delaire flies on the inner right wing. Personally, I couldn't imagine continuing to have to fly a high performance jet in formation while having to watch your spouse eject from a crashing plane. But that speaks to the professionalism of our RCAF pilots. It must have been very intense over the radios until they could be on the ground again. Here's to many more boring and uneventful flights for all. Christian Mace. Yes. Mm-hmm. We like boring, uneventful. Yes.
4: I don't sure. anymore. I want all the flights that I'm not on to be very exciting so I can talk about <laughs> something. <laughs> okay.
6: Well. Uh, I, a, I just want to say, I'm glad I made it through. I don't think I slipped up anywhere. I have a hard time uh, saying snowbird and snowboard. Like for some reason, I always oh. mix the two up. So hopefully I didn't. Sounded like mess so, that snowbird up. to snowbird. me the whole time. Okay. Yeah. Whew. There's also a I can, a skew I can always fix it in post. Snowbird. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> It was okay, yes. A lot say, of concentration there. Right
3: now say snowbird and snowboard.
6: Snowbird, snowboard.
3: There we go. So now I can it sounded edit identical it. to me. Mm-hmm, <laughs>
4: mm-hmm.
6: That's the problem. That's the problem. Um, uh, that's interesting. I did not know that about uh, the two I didn't either. Snowbird pilots. Very oh, good.
4: Very interesting. Um, if they divorce, do you think they'd still be allowed to fly on the same team?
3: Hmm.
4: Maybe the the flight
3: doc might object to that.
4: <laughs> In which case, which one of them would have to resign their position?
3: Uh, the one that wasn't as good a pilot as
4: the other. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they're all great pilots. Yeah.
6: Yes. Yes. Without a doubt. You'll
3: notice I didn't say which one was probably the better pilot. I don't know. No, no. Neither did I. <laughs> um, so. Um,
4: hey, Charles, listening. Yeah. Nick. Item Sir, five, if you'd like. Item five. Mm hmm. Oh, what happened to that? Okay, hang right. on. Oh, the old. What happened to that? I can't find it. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> uh, this is from Jacob. He says hello, not hello, Captain Jeff, or hello, APG. A trip. generic hello. Just very boringly, hello. <laughs> uh, I just saw the artwork for the 400th show, and listening to you, Jeff, talk about how it was one of your all-time favorite aircraft. However, as soon as I saw the artwork depicting the swept-back wings and tail-mounted S-duct engine, it brought shivers down my spine rather than the fond memories I sure sure it brought you, and I can guarantee I wasn't the only one. Ooh, <laughs> let me give a brief explanation. To get a full air transport pilot's license in Australia is slightly different to the States. We have the seven standard commercial pilot's license exams and then an additional seven ATPL, air transport pilot's exams, two of which are based entirely on your beloved 727 performance exam and the flight planning exam. The latter exam has an all-time pass rate of just over 45%, meaning only 45% of the people that ever attempt it pass it. Wow. Unbelievable. That's a low pass rate. (laughs) That's, That's tough. That must be one tough exam. I won't try to explain the questions and how we need to get the answers. It's far too complicated. But if you ever come across to Australia... Uh, sorry, if you ever come across any Australian airline pilot who's sat the exam since 2012, uh, even before that it was hard, but post-2012 it got way worse, ask them, and I'm sure they'll be happy to explain the horror. Basically, it's a map, pencil, and wheel. E6B, I think you Americans call it, exam, but you need to have laser-guided accuracy to complete it. And they're not multiple choice either or multiple guess, as most of us (laughs) say. You have to type in the answer into a box and hope to God it's close enough. Oh, and it's a three-hour exam, which takes four hours to complete, meaning that almost no one ever finishes all the questions in time, which puts even more pressure on you to make sure you get all the five marked questions correct. Uh, as an aside, I think when I did mine, it was based on the 707, which was even more ancient. <laughs> um, to study for that exam, the majority of cad- candidates sorry, spend $2,000 for a full-time course taking two weeks. Then spend another few months revising it and getting faster and more accurate till you're ready to fail it for the first time. <laughs> After you've failed the exam for the first time, you usually spend another few weeks cramming in every bit of knowledge about the 727 you can and memorize each and every performance chart and figure till you are ready to fail it a second time. <laughs> Only then are you frustrated enough to take even more time off work and spend another few weeks studying, cramming, and praying to the 727 God to pass this stupid exam. By the end of it, you know the plane inside out. You know its fuel burn at each level all the way up to 43,000 feet at all weights. You know the OEI flight levels that the plane will need to Be able to maintain an ISA plus 15 and 60,000 kilograms, 62,000 kilograms, 64,000, 66, 68, and 70,000 kilograms. You have more or less memorized the time to climb, fuel burn, and air nautical miles burned in the climb to flight level 300 to 390 and the plethora formula you need, will need to use to convert numbers back and forth inside and out all over again just to come up with an estimated mid-zone weight which if you get wrong will put your final answer out by 200 kilograms which for a flight that will burn 14,000 kilograms of fuel is outside the accuracy needed to pass the exam. Unbelievable. When I was reading this, I thought, oh my gosh. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't think I'd ever be, a, I'd never be an airline pilot in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly right. Those Aussies—I take my hat off to them. I'm rambling. It's uh, been only twelve months since I passed the exam, and the scars it has inflicted still haven't left me. I shudder each time I see any three-inch problem. <laughs> so, a long story short. You have just given any Australian that has an ATPL or just passed the ATPL exams aviation PTSD by showing us such a horrific image of the monster that is the Boeing 727, albeit a very well put together image by Nick. Thank you. Thanks for the show, but for the love of God, please don't ever speak of that one ever again. Sincerely. On behalf of all Australians, Jacob. <laughs> well, Jacob, I, I we had no idea what kind of
3: stress uh, this was going to put you through. And just that, so that, uh, uh, can you see that? Uh,
2: I don't <laughs> oh, oh, my God. God.
4: I just want to scream. Oh, my Australians God. He's going to have to go take some Xanax out <laughs> of <up in> there. <laughs> my <laughs> word. <laughs> oh, a beautiful three holer.
3: Yes, it is. It is. I had no idea. We had no idea. Sorry for all of you out there who have no, had no. to gone through, had to go through this. Uh,
6: I can totally understand, though. That sounds, whew, uh,
3: yeah, sounds horrible. I didn't go through.
5: I didn't go through something much different than that with the ATP that we have to take care. It's very similar. We had to do a lot of those same calculations.
3: Yeah, but I don't think it was quite as extensive as what he was explaining. Not quite as bad, no. And a three-hour test uh, that really takes four hours and all that kind of stuff. And I think we still had multiple guess um, answers and not calculated. And yeah,
5: I became very good at multiple guess.
3: Yes. Wow. I'm so sorry, Jacob, and all of you Australian airline pilots out there. Uh, You know what? The people that came up with that exam, they must just be evil devils or Uh, something i'm
2: sure
3: pilots probably (laughs) yeah all these new age people i'll show them what it's like to fly a 727 (laughs) and i don't think i ever had that that knowledge level on the 727 um, performance but anywho um looks like Uh, it
5: yes oops sorry that's right I hit my mic. I haven't done that in a very, very
3: long time. Okay, but well you're holding your hand up like you wanted to say something else or not.
5: Yeah, I was just saying, we're about two hour mark.
3: Yep. Okay. I was just about to say, looks like it might be about time for us to play this week's installment of The Old Pilot's Plane Tales. And this one is entitled, Black Christmas. The
4: Old Pilot's Plane Tales. Black Christmas. As Christmas approaches, it's sometimes hard not to get upset by the little things in life that have no real meaning, and forget that others might be having real troubles. This story might help to bring things back into perspective. It was on the 15th of November 1946 that Mrs. Greenwood packed up her suitcases and with her two children left Houston, Texas to join her husband for Christmas. She was making an early start as she had some 9,000 miles to cover before she would reach Shanghai where her husband worked as a pilot for the CNAC. They were going to be tired after their long journey, but their excitement at the thought of being together again kept them going. The China National Airways Corporation, or CNAC to the Americans, had started in 1929 when the State Council in China approved a contract whereby Curtis Wright were loaned one million U.S. dollars to assist in the development of aviation in China. A year later Pan American gained an interest and one trip the president of Pan Am made the announcement that employing American aircraft manned by American pilots the CNAC was to start new routes across China. A few years later The U.S. ambassador to China was able to send a letter from Hankow to the States in which he praised the service rendered by the air companies, making it possible for the rapid transport of mail by bridging the Pacific in only five days. He concluded by saying that the bringing together of distant cities in this great country had been in accordance with the best traditions of the genius of the American people. Shortly before America's entry into the Pacific War, the CNAC pioneered the famous routes over the Himalaya Mountains between India and China known as the Hump, a story I told in an earlier tale called the Aluminium Trail. The United States had a long aviation history that linked them to China that included such marvellous exploits as those accomplished by the Flying Tigers. They were the first American volunteer group of the Chinese Air Force who were recruited by President Roosevelt's authority before the attack on Pearl Harbour brought the states into the war. The group achieved notable success during a low period of the war to give hope to America that it might eventually defeat Japan. Nineteen flying Tiger pilots became aces with five or more air-to-air victories. When Christmas Day 1946 came around, a heavy blanket of fog lay over Shanghai. It's a city on China's eastern shore, where the Yangtze and the Huanghu rivers meet. The climate there has been likened to that of San Francisco, with a morning fog that usually burns off by noon, but on that day, instead of dissipating, the fog began to thicken into a dense layer that obscured the world from those above. At the city's Longwa Airport, tensions rose as the visibility failed to improve and eventually dropped to zero. The airport staff, who had been enjoying the Christmas festivities, began to pace around nervously as they heard the engines of incoming flights droning overhead. Like many countries, the ravages of the Second World War had left China woefully short of resources and they had been struggling to rebuild following the devastation of the Japanese occupation. In addition, a vicious internal struggle between the Nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek and the Communists under Mao Zedong was sapping the ability of both sides to rebuild. Lungwa Airport was a hub for CNAC, but it was woefully inadequate for the growing aviation industry based there. The runway was grass and gravel, and hard to spot on a clear day, let alone under a blanket of dense fog. The only navigation aid was a longwave radio beacon, and the runway was lit by a single lamp at each end. William MacDonald was CNAC's chief pilot, He came to the company after years in China with the Flying Tigers. He was worried about the airline's safety record, and rightly so. Over the past few years, they had lost 32 aircraft, killing 100 people, but much of this had been flying notoriously dangerous hump missions. Even so, he was determined to improve matters and had insisted that his crews train on a new ground-controlled approach radar system that had been fitted to the US military airfield at kiang Wan, 15 miles north. A good controller could talk an aircraft down to just above the runway, giving a pilot a chance to see the landing area through poor visibility. All that the incoming pilot needed was a working radio and the instrument flying skills to accurately follow the controller's instructions. Despite MacDonald's insistence that his crews get training on flying a GCA, the tower at Kiang Wan had a faulty power supply that rendered the radar unusable for a lot of the time, so by Christmas only a few of the 42 pilots who applied for training had been able to complete a single landing using the system. The senior tower controller at Lunghua wrote that the weather that day was poor. It had been raining persistently with low cloud and fog dominating the whole eastern seaboard. Many flight and ground personnel were celebrating the holiday in Shanghai. The large influx of American servicemen to the city over the past year guaranteed a surfeit of parties and dances at military bases and clubs. Among the partiers was Senac pilot Peter Gutierre, who wrote about the day in his memoir. By the time I arrived back at the house, the weather was zero-zero, no visibility all, he said it now sounded as if there were several planes milling around upstairs. The tower controller had been monitoring radio transmissions, and by late afternoon the staff knew that four flights were still en route to Shanghai, all originating from Chongqing, about 1,000 miles to the west, CNAC flights 115, 140 and 147, and CATC flight 48. Captain Rolf Prius was piloting Flight 115, a C-46 Curtis Commando carrying 31 passengers and a crew of three. Prius, aged 30, was an experienced pilot, having spent almost a year flying the hump over the Himalayas, that notoriously dangerous route. Growing more and more concerned about fog, Prius radioed another flight, captained by Greenwood, over Nanking. They decided that their best chance was to fly on to Shanghai. The captain of Flight 147, Francis Michel's, was born in Belgium but learned to fly in the US during the Second World War. He later became an instructor, training US and British military pilots in California before joining CNAC in September 1945. His C-46 carried 17 passengers and three crews. Tommy Wing was captain of the lone CATC, Central Air Transport Corporation, Flight 48, a C-47 with seven passengers and three other crew members. Wing was a US citizen, born in Chicago, and was previously a CNAC pilot. He was known for his sense of humour and was well-liked by his colleagues. Unfortunately for him, CNAC had two payroll schedules – the one for Chinese pilots was considerably lower than the one for Americans, and Wing's employers placed him on the Chinese scale. For additional income, he had taken to smuggling cigarettes, but he was found out and fired. He simply walked over to the CATC offices, an airline that paid the same wages to all aircrew, and was hired. Tommy Wing was flying a C-47 and was low overhead, circling the field. The chief pilot was trying to contact him by radio phone, but couldn't get through as the aircraft's equipment wasn't operating properly. Wing had tried to fly a GCA at Kiang Airfield, but without a working radio, it proved impossible. Another pilot recalled that he had probably never heard of a GCA and certainly had never practised one, He shot the approach, but must have been a little high and was told to take a wave off. After several attempts at around 5.45 in the afternoon, wings aircraft banked to the left on descent. The C-47 struck the roof of a nearby building and cartwheeled into a built-up area, killing several people on the ground. All 11 souls on flight 48 were lost. Flights 140 and 147 had now arrived overhead Shanghai. MacDonald had no other options, so he ordered them to Qiangwan. Green Greenwood arrived first, but he found that he couldn't establish contact with the tower due to an intermittent radio failure in his DC-3. Unable to use the GCA system, he turned back to Lunghua, leaving Michel's circling Qiangwan at 4,000 feet. At the controls of Flight 140, Captain James Greenwood was expecting his wife and children to arrive from the States to spend Christmas with him. Greenwood was relatively new to CNAC, but he was an accomplished pilot with years of commercial airline experience. Originally from Houston, Texas, he had come out to China because the salaries were better there. He was flying a DC-3 with 27 passengers and two other crew members. Michels was a big man, well thought of by all, but after Christmas 1946 he was judged a real hero. When he reached Kyung that night, his radio was able to pick up the ground instructions as he nosed his C-46 down towards the runway. He knew about the GCA system, but had never used it. Another pilot, Oliver Glenn, wrote later that the secret of GCA was the pilot's faith in the system. Michel's truly flying blind had surely mustered all his faith to follow the instructions that came through his headphones as the operators, watching Flight 147 on their radar, began talking him down. Michels later told a colleague that he didn't know if he saw the runway lights or touched down first. At Lungwa, Chief Pilot MacDonald ordered the ground crew to pour strips of gasoline along the runways and light them to make up for the dim lights which failed to penetrate the fog. MacDonald talked to Greenwood as best he could through the faulty radio calmly trying to guide the pilot in. In the tower, his engines could be clearly heard, but his flashing navigation lights were invisible, nor had anyone seen his landing lights. All was deathly silent on the field. The only sound was that of the plane in the distance, getting louder and louder as it approached. MacDonald said that he was shaking so hard he could hardly conceal it from those around him. Then over the radio, Greenwood's calm voice announced that he had lost an engine. MacDonald stepped out of the balcony of the town in case the aircraft could be seen. The spluttering of an engine could be heard then an eerie silence for a few seconds. The sound of the impact exploding from the darkness was a heartbreaking noise. Another aircraft had gone down. It was now abundantly clear that the last approaching aircraft was in extreme danger. The crew would have heard the last transmissions of CNAC 140. Prius aboard Flight 115 was the only one of the four pilots who had experience with the GCA system. But the radio in his C-46 couldn't transmit on the radio frequency required to use it. Now perilously low on fuel... He called into Longua that he was on a long final. He called again that he wasn't happy with his first approach and would go around. He flew back and forth over the fields several times, coming down as low as he dared, his chief pilot talking to him all the time, sounding calm and confident. The fog had seemed to thin a little. When it sounded as if he was nearing short finals, there was a sudden, loud, dull thud, and then again that awful silence. It took rescue workers hours to find the wreckage. The aircraft had crashed short of the airport, in an area crisscrossed by canals, so naval craft were used to reach it. The C 46 had hit the ground and then skidded into a schoolhouse, fortunately empty, and started a small fire. The wreckage was massive, and the personnel who reached the scene declared that all 31 passengers had died. Prius survived, but with disfiguring injuries that caused enormous pain for the rest of his life, he was sent back to the United States for treatment and had his left leg amputated a few months later. Of Greenwood, whose wife was arriving after her long journey, it seemed that he had aligned his aircraft well, but out of fuel he had slowed and stalled. The aircraft came down at the intersection of the runway, skidding a thousand yards before somersaulting. When the rescue team arrived, It was too late to save most of the victims, but men waded through heavy rain and mud to reach several passengers. It was thought that of the 30 people on board, 10 survived. Captain Greenwood was not one of them. The final count of those who died on Black Christmas, as it came to be called by the Senac pilots, is a little difficult to calculate. Records are incomplete, eyewitnesses disagree, and the aftermath was so horrible that confusion overtook record keeping. Several reports had the body count at 62, yet one official report had it as high as 71. Having travelled 9,000 miles to join her husband for Christmas, all Mrs. Greenwood and her children could do was to return to the United States with her husband's body. After such an awful event, the only heartening discovery was when the salvage crews lifted the wreckage of one of the aircraft. They found a four-year-old child, who at first they thought was dead. After the crash, little Wong Diddy had cried for his mother. But having received no answer, he had quietly gone to sleep.
3: Wow, such an uplifting Christmas story! Thank you, Captain Nick. <laughs> oh, did we get a
6: there. hap we get a happier one in the weeks leading up to the week leading up to Christmas? Wait,
3: we're not yeah. hearing it.
4: There yeah. we are. Oh, okay, good. Uh- sadly it's it's that time of the year when you know I, I thought it was probably best to start off on the low side and then build up <laughs> something <happening. laughs>
6: only only can go up from here in terms of yeah i know
4: and cheerfulness. Uh, it, it is a sad mm. a very sad story but i mean it was a it was a a, a day uh, i suspect which was matched by many others in, in that time during the aviation industries Efforts to, uh, you know, just cope with the weather and the technology they had at the time. It was, uh, you know, almost inevitable they, that they were going to lose aircraft and people were going to die. But just having it all happen on Christmas and uh, it was just, you know, a culmination of a dreadful series of events. Yeah, very much so, especially that
3: the long 9,000 mile journey for Mrs. Greenwood and her children, only to have to take the body of their husband-slash-father home.
4: I have no idea how people can be met with such awful news and get through the rest of their lives, because Mm -hmm. I'm sure she did. I wish I could have found out something about what happened to her afterwards, but Mm -hmm. sadly there's very little information other than a few memoirs and a few paper clippings to get a lot of the background of this. Um, but uh, it was a dangerous place to be flying out there with very little technology. Old aircraft that are... Well, I say old aircraft. They were World War Two aircraft, but they didn't have the sophistication that we just take for granted nowadays. Yeah. Wow. Still, uh, a, a great tale I loved uh, because, you know, we've all faced bad weather, and I don't know if you've ever done it, but... I. You know, sometimes I think to myself, well, if the instrument landing system fails and I'm low on fuel and uh, uh, and it's fogged out, uh, as can happen here in the U.K., sometimes you can get the whole of the south of England can fog out. Mm-hmm. think to yourself, well, what do I do? Where, where do I go? How do I get this airplane down safely? And and so all the passengers, uh, you know. Wow, well, anyway. No, Play
6: I've, I've I've your options had- and pick the the best available i suppose yeah, yeah
5: absolutely i've actually had that happen to me
6: oh tell us more mm-hmm.
5: yeah when i was uh, back in my uh, um learning to fly days back when i had my buddy that had a 182 i went down to middle georgia to pick up his airplane for him and uh, cavu beautiful night i mean when i say cavu there was no forecast for anything for rain uh fog clouds anything so, just decided to come back with the fuel they had on board the aircraft. And uh, as I was approaching uh, from the south or south of the, the Hartsfield Airport, I was going up into PDK, peachtree Decab Airport, which is just north and east of downtown Atlanta. Um, I started listening to ATIS, and ATIS is reporting one quarter mile in fog.
2: Ooh,
5: I was like, ouch. Oh, what do you mean one quarter? What amount of fog? Where is this coming from? Um, so I'm I you know, listening to your traffic control, and, and, and a couple of uh, corporate jets went in, tried to make the approach. Uh, they came out missed. And I started thinking to myself, okay, well, what are my options here? Um, coming up on Atlanta, Atlanta's clear. Uh, however, there was an entirely huge fog bank that was moving over from – the winds were out of the east, and Jeff will know this – when the winds are out of the east in Atlanta, it tends to bring in low clouds. Um, and so I decided to listen to ATIS there. And at, at Hartsfield, it was still pretty good, uh, but it was decreasing. And I opted to try to go into Fulton County. By the time in Fulton County was reporting, I want to say I don't remember specifically, Fulton County is the airport that's actually closest to me, right where I live now here in the west side of Atlanta. Um, and it's in a bit of a valley, so it, it won't quite fog in as quick. If, if stuff is coming in, because you can get below it. Um, so uh, they were reporting, I think, 300-foot ceilings with about a mile and a half visibility and rapidly decreasing. So I opted to go in and shoot the approach into, um, and mind you, this is in the 182. Uh, and, and at night, no, it wasn't during daytime, this is at night, um, and shot the approach right down to minimums at Fulton County. And when I t- tell you, by the time I taxied the airplane to the uh, general aviation ramp, it was down to, you know, barely visible to, to you know, be able to taxi the airplane, you know, maybe, uh, you know, 16th of a mile. So it, it rolled in real fast. And, you know, I remember that here I am in an airplane, single engine, Uh, airplane with not a whole lot of fuel. I mean, it has a capacity to carry a whole lot of fuel, but when I went down to middle Georgia to pick up the aircraft, well, you know, it was it was in late in the afternoon, early evening. There was no, you know, general aviation fuel available at that point. The FBO was closed, or I don't even think there was one there. I'm forgetting whether there was one. I would have had to stop someplace to get more fuel. I said, well, you know, I've got, I've got, uh, you know, uh, 20 gallons on the airplane. That's not an issue. It, I'm just doing a short hour of flight. Yeah, that that became the Pucker Factor real quick because I was running out of options real quick. Wow. And the problem was not that I couldn't get anyplace else. Uh, necessarily, you know, for better weather to the south, but I was running out of fuel without the ability to go anyplace else. And that was a a typical situation, you know, one of those situations where the forecast was completely for clear skies.
3: Were you sucking the cushion through one of your body's cavities? (laughs) Yeah, the (laughs) the puck effect, I mean, you know, (laughs) I think I would
5: have. (laughs) (laughs) Real fast, let me tell you, because you know, (laughs) here I am. I mean, I'm, I'm not the experienced aviator I am now. And even with the, being the experienced aviator now, I mean, how many times do do we come in to, you know, a high-density airport like we go into, Jeff, and you look at the fuel load, and it's pretty close to what I consider my absolute minimum. I won't go below a certain number. Um, but, you know, all it takes is an emergency aircraft or an unexpected weather yeah. event or, you know, a go-around. And the next thing you know, the puck effect is going to get up there real fast because we're not going around with a whole lot of fuel mm-hmm. like if we had an alternate. Right. So I don't know what your number is, but I certainly don't. I, if, if anything below 6,500 pounds on landing, I, I just won't do it. Period.
3: Now yeah, mine's lower. <laughs> Came back to <laughs> the, what, 6,000? Uh, I don't want to talk about
5: it. 62.25. <laughs> 62, 64.99. <laughs> uh, my I mean i'm I'm just throwing out that number, but it, it yeah. it's it it's in that range. I mean, it it really takes it's the time of day and, and what you know right it's nighttime, and you know there's a whole lot of factors.
3: There are a lot that. of things you have to consider and exactly that, yeah,
5: but yeah. Uh,
4: that that can happen to anybody. Yes, Nick. Going back to uh, the story, i the person i I obviously the the crashes were tragic, but one of the people I felt very sorry for was the chief pilot, Mac McGreg, uh, McDonald. Those were the days when Chief Pilots really ran the whole show. And I'm just trying to imagine how he must have felt when uh, four aircraft came in and only one landed safely. And that was, uh, you know, still, as the guy admitted, uh, you know, he really didn't see anything until his wheels touched the ground. Um, and he lost three airplanes, two from his company and one from the next-door company, all on the same night. That must have been just an awful time oh, to live through for him. Uh, and to list, be standing there in the tower, trying to listen to your guys, trying to get in, uh, yeah, geez, that must have been mm-hmm. tough. Yeah. Wow, what a story. I'd never heard of that. So thank you for
3: mm-hmm. No, neither have I yeah, until yeah. I came across it. So. Excellent. Well, thank you, old pilot, Captain Nick. Hey, I love it. All right, um, Steph, we haven't heard your nice voice uh, in a while. Why, why don't you do an item she number six? A nice
4: voice. Yeah, I wish you'd use it. I,
6: maybe. Sorry, just, I know I've been been a little quiet here. I apologize yeah. for for that. Some other things going on. Um, anyway, yeah, I'd be happy to read. Is it number six that we're on? Yep. Back on in here. So uh, this is from Tim. He says, greetings from Arkansas, or Arkansas, if you're the old (laughs) pilot. Um, I
4: love Arkansas. Great place. (laughs) Uh,
6: I've had plenty of time to discover new podcasts lately. Uh, He's he's wandering away from from listening to us. I see how this is, Tim. Um, Mm. Anyway, he says, and I just had to write in about one I just listened to called No Such Thing as a Fish, episode 298. Uh, And specifically from... 2 minutes 30 seconds to 14 minutes 30 seconds he gives the link to the podcast that he references um while not a flying podcast this episode did start off talking about emotional support animals and had some interesting funny facts about flying and even some balloon facts this may not be worthy of a mention on an episode here it is but i thought you all might enjoy listening to their conversation I just finished listening to APG402, and I must say it is amazing how Captain Nick is able to evoke such emotions through his storytelling. Listening to the banter between all of you shows why the show seems to be such a success. It sounds like you are all good friends, even when off the podcast. Well, at least 50%
3: of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, (laughs) <laughs> yes, <laughs> we're,
6: we're friends fifty percent of the time. Half the
3: time, yeah. Half, Half the time, time. Yeah. just like
6: love hate for sure. <laughs> anyway, he says, "Keep up the great work, and who knows, maybe someday I'll end up on one of your planes before they're retired." Tim from Arkansas.
3: I
4: hope uh, so. I used to listen to no such thing as a fish. I, I listen
6: to it intermittently still.
4: Yeah. Uh, is it still going? I yes, seen... absolutely. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. They are the elves. Um, there's a, a TV program here called QI, uh, which stands for quite interesting, uh, and it is a wonderful kind of fig quiz show, but um, created about uh, interesting facts. And uh, they ask people things you'd expect to be true or false, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's very amusing, very well done. Um, Stephen Fry used to be the Quizmaster, master mm-hmm. um and uh, the elves who do all the background work finding out all the facts uh started their own podcast uh with all the leftover facts
0: <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's very
6: interesting you listen to it and they'll say this was my most interesting fact of the the week and then they all launch into a discussion about it and yeah. uh, it's 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 clever stuff
4: it is clever stuff because they're clever people, and they're they're particularly going for interesting, unusual, and strange things that you might not believe, but are true. We should start doing
3: that.
6: What being clever? <laughs> yeah, being clever,
4: <laughs> being clever
3: <laughs> or and funny. Strange.
6: <laughs> <Or> strange.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that too.
2: Looking uh, up facts be beforehand.
3: Facts, thing. yeah, yeah the fact, fact, fact thing. Yeah. Wow, that would be different. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
6: Well, well, we'll take that under advice. But. Oh, yeah. anyway yeah I think I think we'd recommend uh, no such thing as a fish it's it's a great podcast
4: so. yeah
3: excellent. Thanks for sending the feedback in Tim uh, let's see let's do seven here from Dale. Uh, hello all very inclusive. My first time with feedback for the ABG team and first of all a big thank you for what you do. You're welcome. Uh, This event may well have already been on your radar scopes, but worth highlighting, I thought. This is almost literally in my backyard. I live in the Bay of Plenty in New Zealand. I love that. Bay of Plenty. I like that. In New Mm. Zealand. And the small shape of white island on the horizon, often with some steam clouds above it, is part of the scenery here. The events of this week are as shocking as they are saddening. New Zealanders live with the knowledge that we are in a geologically active country, but even with the best information available through our scientists monitoring such things, volcanoes can and do erupt without enough warning. This this article demonstrates the bravery beyond belief of the helicopter pilots who responded immediately to the event and saved many people's lives directly as a result. I have utter admiration for those who did this in the very literal face of a volcanic eruption. In contrast to this, I've been equally surprised and disappointed by the subsequent comments from the GA piloting community here within New New Zealand regarding the officials that be preventing more flights there to recover bodies of those that perished immediately. I work in high-hazard environments, and I am well-versed in the risk-based approach to dangerous environments, especially where the air quality is compromised. This follow-on response showed me in a personal way that not all pilots look at risk management in the same way. It's not a, quote, red tape preventing the recovery of the deceased. It's a lack of understanding of the risks on site. No one will authorize aircraft to land there in an environment that may have high concentrations of heavier-than-air and poisonous gases at ground level in an attempt to recover the dead. It is a horribly sad situation, but not one to make worse by putting more lives at risk. And I thought that this was worth sharing. I hope you find it an interesting and thought-provoking read. Kind regards and well-placed thermals for all the glider, glider pilots out there. And this is Dale Eastham. And then he uh, included a link to this uh, article. And um, why don't we just put the link to the article in the show notes and everybody can read it on their own or if there's anything sure. you guys want to talk about regarding Oh, I was it. just going
6: to going to jump in real quick yeah. and uh it, kind of a small world um uh, a doctor that I uh, uh know from residency training actually uh, previously lived in New Zealand and then moved uh, there just recently again to work in a small community-based hospital and it turns out that her hospital was kind of the ground zero for the first uh, evacuees from the, mm. the White Island uh, and it was she had a really um uh, kind of intense post on on social media the other day just to say how much it impacted her and she'd never seen anything like that before in terms of the severity of injuries and just to keep all of those people and their thoughts and families and first responders in 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 their thoughts so it was,
3: what were the uh the main injuries I mean, burns burns oh, Okay.
4: Mm-hmm. Burns uh, through well, heat and also from the acidity of the eruption
3: hmm. I yeah, imagine I get that, the,
4: that uh, there were people there with their clothes that were pretty undamaged, but underneath they had the most appalling burns because uh, of a combination of the uh, the dreadful acidity of the um, well, gases, mm-hmm. I guess, mm-hmm. and also uh, with a combination of the heat. But I, I don't think… People see a volcano erupting and they see the, the ash and they think, well, actually, that's look, the, the whole rest of the island's fine. I don't think they have any comprehension of the danger of the gases that are coming out that are invisible. Uh, and the, the place has just become one toxic no go zone mm. until it all comes down. But yeah. uh, I mean, I feel appallingly sorry for those that were put in danger uh, and uh, perished. What's the point of pouring more fine people into that situation just to put them at risk of uh, suffering exactly the same?
2: Yeah,
6: sure. and no doubt there's a lot of people who do want to to help, but um, oh yeah,
4: some marvelous, well-meaning yeah. people, but
6: You're able to safely yeah. do without more lives and resources at at risk. And there will be a time and place to to pick up those efforts again when yeah. it's safe to do. So. Yeah. So. Anyway.
3: All right. Well, thank you, Dale, for that. And again, folks, um, the article will be uh, in the show notes for you to read. All right. We have some audio feedback from Class Bravo Chris. He says, "My first audio feedback. Bottom line: Do planes really taxi out and take off with such thin weight and balance margins? Have Have a listen.
7: Hey, APG crew. It's Class Bravo Chris with my first ever audio feedback coming to you from the San Francisco Bay Area, or maybe as Captain Nick might call it, Frisco or San Fran. Don't ever call it that, actually. Hey, I got a a question for you. I thought the audio feedback would be easier since it's kind of a a detailed question and a two-part question. Here's the first one. I was on an American Airlines flight recently. I know Steph will appreciate this, flying out of Charlotte on an Airbus a 3 21 beautiful aircraft had the luxury of sitting up front and was noticing just before pushback a lot of what looked to be commuting flight attendants and pilots getting on the plane and at one point it seemed that maybe there wasn't going to be either enough room for all of them or jump seats or maybe just there was a weight issue and so while I was sitting up there and listening to what was going on I noticed the captain at one point was just furiously typing into the flight management system, presumably doing a weight and balance check. Interesting to watch. And eventually said, okay, let's go. Closed the door to the cockpit. They closed the door to the aircraft. Everybody, all the commuter flight attendants and pilots sat down. I think there was one on a jump seat. And then of course, um, the other areas in the galley where some of the flight attendants sit when those seats are not in use. So, We push back, we head out, start taxing, engine start, and then the captain comes on and says, Hey, we'll get going here in just a second, Um, trying to get some numbers here. As soon as we have those numbers, we'll be on our way to San Francisco. He did not say San Fran or Frisco, thank goodness. So interestingly, five minutes go by, and suddenly the captain comes back on and says, well, actually, bad news, folks. We've got to go back to the gate. We are too heavy. So my question, first question, after all of that number crunching, what went wrong here? We had to go back to the gate. Well, I have a little bit of an answer to that, but I'm curious as to why the margins were so close. So we get back to the gate. The captain had to take... The pilot jump seat passenger, I guess a commuting pilot off the plane for weight issues. One person gets back on the PA and says, not perhaps as eloquently as Captain Jeff might say it, that the wind had changed directions. And in Charlotte, they decided to use a different runway because of that. And because of that, the weight and balance figures or the takeoff weight figures no longer were valid at the current weight that we pushed back with. Okay, fair enough. So we're on our way. Here's where things got really interesting. So we had one less passenger on board. As we're taxiing to now the now active runway, I could sense that while we are waiting in a line of about four aircraft, that the engine sound was higher than normal, almost as if the captain or the flying pilot was putting the throttles at a higher RPM than might be typical for sitting and waiting for takeoff. I noticed this on a few occasions. So we would move forward a few feet, wait for the next aircraft to taxi into position and hold. And while we were doing that, the brakes were on and set and the throttles were higher. No question about it. So I'm wondering, have you ever done this? And perhaps was the flight crew still a bit concerned that we were a little bit heavy and wanted to try to burn more fuel by running the engines at a higher RPM uh, just prior to takeoff to make sure that the fuel and the weight and the margins were where we needed it to be. I love what you guys are doing. Happy holidays. I'm not sure if this will be red before or after the new year, but all the best and all the most amazing blue skies to you in 2020 and beyond. And into episode 500 at some point there in the next however many months or years. All right. It's Class Bravo Chris from San Francisco saying thank you. Talk to you soon.
3: Ooh, Class Bravo Chris. Great pipes, man. Um, uh, From Frisco. I'm sorry, San Francisco. Um, <laughs> um
4: San Fran. no, it's uh, actually <laughs> called Baghdad by the Bay. Oh, <laughs> no. or, like, oh, oh boy. You uh, could get it, it's uh, captain Nick at airlinepilotguy.com, <laughs> <City>. <laughs> well, I don't. The city is another one. Fog City is a good one, or just City by the Bay. How's that? There you go. Am I forgiven? Uh,
3: I don't know you'll have to uh. he'll have to uh, talk to class Bravo Chris about that anyway <laughs> yeah. I'm. I'm so glad class Bravo we've gotten a lot of feedback from uh, class Bravo Chris over uh, the years and um, what took you so long to send in audio feedback man that was awesome um, mm. so I think Dana and well Dana and I were both kind of shaking our heads about things the first before Dana gets into uh, the burning fuel and that sort of thing um, I, I think, It's just my feeling that what you think that you saw the captain doing as far as doing landing takeoff data and that calculations and that kind of thing in the cockpit. I don't think that's exactly what was going on, because I believe that American Airlines is very much like Acme, where there is like a separate department that does that kind of uh, load um, that does all the numbers and performance data and everything else. And the reason why I say that is because Dana and I know many, many times especially here in Atlanta, American is just notorious for having to pull off to the side and wait for their numbers. And it's not the numbers that they're calculating themselves with their little computers. It's they're waiting for their company to send their numbers via a cars. So that's the only thing I want to say right off the bat. But I think Dana will have a good explanation of likely what happened here and and the, the feeling that you had about the higher engine RPM, I believe you may have uh, you might be onto to something there.
5: Yeah, and, and the fact that I flew out of Dallas uh, for several years—well, uh, actually a year and a half—I shouldn't shouldn't say several years—that uh, was quite a common uh, uh, occurrence. Is that AA American Airlines uh, were sitting out there waiting for numbers? And what the numbers are specifically is the uh, weight and balance numbers that the, that the aircraft is within the weight and balance envelope, as well as and the numbers that they're referring to the the uh, takeoff numbers for speeds, uh, the V one. VR and V2 speeds, um, and that they are legal to depart. Uh, now, more than likely, and going back to the, the question of all these uh, crew members getting on the airplane, you got to remember, um, more than likely, I'm willing to bet that some of those crew members are probably deadhead crew members and that they are positive space on the aircraft. Uh, The jump seater obviously, in the uh, flight deck, uh, obviously was taking a free ride home probably or going to work. One of the two, uh, usually that's, especially if they're in uniform, that's usually what's going to be the case. But I agree with you, Jeff. Uh, You know, there is nothing pre-flight. I mean, he may have been typing furiously to the dispatcher, uh you know some type of message uh you know whether uh you know maybe we need to take a look at this uh and yes uh to answer your question uh regarding uh the runway configurations etc cetera, etc cetera, more than likely um they were landing what we call landing weight limited so they had to burn a certain amount of fuel uh to make sure they were going to be okay to to land uh below the maximum landing weight of the aircraft uh, so that requires a certain amount of fuel burn, which is another part of, okay, the brakes are set, and if the uh, engines are spooled up a little bit, that means more than likely they had, uh, you know, usually it's about a 1,000 pounds, roughly. I'm and, and I'm only using rough numbers because every aircraft is different, but you can taxi out heavier than you're allowed to take off. Uh, you know, your numbers that will allow you to take off your maximum takeoff weight. So that's when you are required to have a taxi uh, fuel burn. So uh, as you're sitting out there, if if the line's not as long as the company's anticipating because it's always based on how much time, uh, your anticipated takeoff and what your taxi burn will be, uh, if it's looking like well, instead of it being you know, number fifteen for takeoff, you might be number five. You might not burn enough fuel to be able to legally take off and be below your maximum takeoff weight. So there's there's several things going on there. Um, it could be landing weight limited. It could be takeoff weight limited. Um, certainly, uh, you know, winds in in runway performance would affect it. But I don't know that going into Charlotte. You know, you're talking a five four to five hour flight roughly give or take a little bit depending on the winds um i don't know that uh landing in charlotte would be as as detrimental as much as the winds aloft in how fast your flight is going to cross i think he was going
6: from charlotte to san francisco
5: okay so 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 against
6: Stream, yeah. gets against
5: against Jetstream again, so you know, depending on on what the anticipated fuel burn is, it could it could it could affect you know th- those numbers as well. So, but you know, we have other ways of taking care of that. I mean, if you've ever noticed, uh, you know, landing weight limited. If you if you get all the way across the country going to San Francisco, and you're going to be landing weight limited, well, you might put the flaps and slats down early, or and or might uh, use the spoilers a little bit more, and or put the landing gear down early. And or, you know, worst case scenario, go out there and, hold you know, do a couple of turns in the hold so that you can get below your landing weight limit. So that's really not as much of a factor as the taxi fuel and takeoff weight. Um, the landing weight limit would be, you know, how many people you have on the aircraft and what you're expected to land with. So, yes, one person uh, can make the difference. Uh, I can assure, I can tell you, though, that uh, if, if it's an online, you know, with us, with Acme, if it's an online jumpseater, an employee, a pilot of our company, they are included in that weight, and so they they would not take the pilot out of the jump seat. So it may have been an, another airline carrier, a jumpseater, or I don't know what their <coughs> policy is there. So I was going to say,
6: how do they how do they decide who to kick off the, the plane? They just well, kind of take a walk down the aisle and go, mm, you.
5: <laughs> yeah, well, usually the non-revs go first. You yes. know, the people are going to stand by. Um, and, you know, if if in this case, more than likely, unfortunately, is probably a commuter pilot going to work, and, you know, another airline pilot trying to get to work or go home, uh, and they'll probably be the first ones to be taken off.
6: Oh, I was going to say, I've, I've actually been a passenger on a flight where the uh, we were uh, takeoff weight limited out of Heathrow on an A330 with the, with American Airlines also um I think it was the case of expecting longer uh taxi time and then it was not so long of taxi time and the uh, captain came on and just said yeah we're just going to sit here and burn fuel for about mm, I forget how long it was but yeah
3: I think that uh the jumpseater like told a really bad joke and the captain goes <laughs> no way you're, man I'm not going <laughs> you're out of here I'm going back to the gate I'm going to make up this story about a different runway and all that
5: Past gas. That's number oh, one way to get removed from the
3: jump
2: seat. Gas,
3: <laughs> gas. Who knows, really? But uh, as uh, the other thing, Dana, you're talking about, you know, adding drag and whatever you can do to burn as much fuel so that you're within your legal uh, maximum landing weight. Another thing to do is to descend way early. Yes. And So because at the lower altitudes you're burning more fuel. That's another another trick we have up our sleeves. Yes, I forgot about Tricks that. Tricks of the trade. Yes. Or he could just open the dump valves and just just dump the fuel. No, I'm just kidding. We don't have those on our, our airplane. Maybe maybe Nick did that, but he'd probably never. Oh, the three
4: thirty couldn't dump. The three thirty oh, right. could. Okay. Yeah, we used to head off down to uh, Lagos tankering, and uh, we would know exactly how much fuel we were going to consume on the way, uh, and um, <laughs> uh, Air Traffic used to try to give us direct routings, and we go, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we Wait, we we'd like to, to take the in a group today. Exactly right. We'd like to go by the flight plan. Uh, and they get very confused because <laughs> huh? they go, you don't want to go direct? What's, what's the matter with oh, you guys? What's wrong with you? Because uh, if we went direct, we knew we'd arrive with too much fuel and we'd have to just go in the hold until we burnt down to landing fuel. So, wow. Sure. <laughs> really funny. All right.
3: Well, thank you very much, uh, Class Bravo Chris. Uh, great questions. Hope that answered them for you. And finally, we have the last item in our feedback folder and it's some audio feedback from another podcaster, host of the wonderful um, yes, podcasting on a plane podcast, Brandon Gonzalez, who not only is he an air traffic controller, but he's also a pilot. And he sent us this.
0: Hey there, APG crew and community. A belated yet heartfelt congratulations on 400 episodes. And more importantly, here's to 400 more. You know, at the end of episode 403, a guy named John left some feedback with the idea of having controllers ride along on sim training sessions, and it got me thinking. First off, Captain Jeff, you were looking for the term flight deck training. That's where controllers do jump seat rides on normal Revenue 121 flights, and we usually refer to it as FDT for short, or going flight decking. But you were right, the program was around a long time ago, and then it went away. And most importantly, though, it came back. And that's good, because it's a wonderful program, and for some of my thoughts on it, you can actually check out my own episode number 27, where I share a little bit about the program and what my experience was like last year when I went out to Cleveland. And sorry, I'm not trying to plug, but it's kind of funny, because that was actually the first time that RH from Opposing Bases and I did an episode together. Anyway, after the feedback, you all spoke a little bit about it, and Dana's comments about controllers training at the academy and then going out to the facility were interesting, because it kind of made me realize that not a lot of pilots really think about what our training's like. It's not really like becoming a pilot at all, but I suppose there are some general similarities, like for example, the Academy in Oklahoma City. It's a little bit like getting your initial certificates and ratings, and then you go to your facility to do specific on-the-job training, which is kind of like going through initial training at an airline, ultimately culminating in a type rating if you're a pilot, or a facility rating if you're in air traffic. And then at that point, you're released to fly the line or to work live air traffic with just general supervision. So RH and I actually just recorded another collab a few days ago, and you're probably going to like it because it gets pretty deep into the weeds with what towers are working with, but this time him and I play pilot a little more than usual. And as far as flying both sides of the mic is concerned, you know, most controllers aren't pilots. And if they didn't come from the Air Force or, you know, something like that, they probably don't have an aviation background. No surprises there. But that's where the collab between ATC and industry really comes into play the flight deck training program may be actually the only time that they get to witness cockpit operations ever and i think that it's a really good time for pilots to talk to controllers too and to give them the good stuff that they need to take back to their facilities about what it's like on their side of the cockpit door right but the idea of controllers sitting in actual pilot sim training is a pretty interesting concept and i gotta say i think i like it and i like that you all seemed favorable to the idea too John had mentioned in the feedback some possible difficulties, though, all of them true, and then Captain Dana added some good stuff to his points as well. And my critical brain also came up with a few more things that'll probably have to get worked out from our side, not least of which would be the logistics of actually getting controllers to airline and sim centers to do the ride-alongs. You know, often it's really hard to get a day or two off the schedule to go flight decking, and if an overnight was required, well, that might make for some added difficulty too. Also, having experienced plenty of it myself, I know how complicated and deep into the weeds sim training scenarios get, and I'm not sure if most controllers would truly understand what they're witnessing, plus those sessions are often hours and hours long, and they're pretty brutal. But that said, I'm sure that those few issues could be worked through easily enough, and really clear the way for this type of thing to occur. And on the pro side, you know, it'd be excellent training. The stuff you can never see any other way could be demonstrated, as is of course the major point of the sim in the first place and to reference the example in the feedback it'd make it really clear when is and isn't a good time to talk to an air crew in distress. It's straight up more cockpit time for controllers which is probably always good and pragmatically speaking there's never a weight and balance issue a jump seat conflict a missed connection or any other curveball that real line flying can often throw your way right and who knows maybe some benevolent sim instructor might even let you get some stick time afterward to really round out the experience. Okay, that probably won't happen, but I can dream, can't I? I've had my fair share of sim torture, but I'd still jump at the opportunity to get in there again anytime, even if it's just to watch somebody else. But a fun last thought, you know, at my airport, which is absolutely full of professional track pilot training, we host facility tours regularly, and many aspiring pilots get to see and hear and experience controller training too, just like Dana mentioned. It really breaks down those invisible and, frankly, imaginary barriers, and it kind of shows that they're aren't really teams in this whole thing, just different viewpoints. Anyway, if a sim ride-along program ever did come about, I'm not sure it'd be quite as popular as real fight deck training, but it'd be a great opportunity for sure. And if it did become a thing, well, no doubt I'd be the first to sign up for an Acme Mad Dog sim session any day.
3: Awesome. Thank you, Brandon, for the, for the feedback. And uh, you would certainly be at the top of the list there to come on in and watch us flail <laughs> in the simulator. Do you know where Brandon lives? Yeah. He lives in Southern California. Oh, Okay.
6: You know, the more I think about it too, Brandon, I agree. I think it's, it's, it sounds like a really good idea just um, logistically. I think there's a lot of all the, the negatives that have brought been brought up, I think are minor in comparison to a lot of the positives. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's a good chance to watch what happens in an emergency, even if it's simulated and probably goes a whole lot smoother than an actual emergency might. Um, but Hey, that's how training is anyway. Right.
5: Yep. Yeah. Sure. I mean, it's just training there's, there's no, uh, you know, like we were talking about earlier with the South, you know, the Southwest aircraft. I mean, you, you, you don't, you can't train for everything and you just have to, take what you're given in and make the decisions with it and that's what we why we train to be able to analyze and think about what we're doing and when we're doing it so it would just be a you know very small cutout but at least you'd get to experience what we're going
3: through yeah and now brandon being a pilot he knows kind of what's happening there it's just uh, i think it'd be most beneficial for the folks who the air traffic controllers that are not pilots
6: And, you know, I think having their air traffic control background, um, I don't think the things that will be happening in a simulator from a flying standpoint will be that difficult to understand and make sense of, even if it's fast paced and has a lot of technical stuff going on. You get the gist. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Or just the the basic bottom line concept of, wow, there are a lot of things going on here. They're Mm -hmm. trying to communicate with the cabin. They're trying to communicate with the company. And here I am you know, asking him all these questions and not realizing that there's a lot more going on than I thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, very good. Thank you, Brandon, for, uh, and again, you, uh, if you don't already subscribe to Brandon's podcasting on a plane podcast, please do. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's a top quality, top notch show. And with that, I think it's time for us to end our show episode 404 yes a major major error that you're listening to this or watching this um, but uh, hey we didn't force a, we didn't put a gun to your head to do this so uh, thankfully yeah and uh, we are uh, coming up on the holidays here but we're going to do our best to continue to put out a show every week and I'm not sure when the next one's going to be but you'll find out by uh, following us on Uh, the social medias and uh, Steph is going to tell you about that.
6: Nice segue there, Captain Jeff. Thank you. Uh, I lucked out. You're looking for that word the other week, I think. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes. Find us on these social medias. You can head over to twitter.com using the handle at APG crew, interact with all of us there together or find our personal information uh, handles tagged at the top of that page. Uh, You can also head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy, uh, lots of good community interaction going on there, information about uh, news stories, gatherings, anything that uh, you might want to know about in the world of aviation. So hope to see you there on the social media.
3: Yes, and the other social media that we're on is uh, Slack, um, managed by, created by, and uh, uh, controlled by Hillel. And so, hang on, let me... Uh, turn my microphone volume down hello hello it's time it's time for uh, the slack thing where's the soap uh i'll t- i'll show you later Okay, right, could you come over here and tell us about slack please
5: apg listeners please join us on our slack team slack is a communication coordination and sharing platform that works on your mobile laptop or browser On Slack, we share news and ideas, we suggest episode and plain tales topics, we plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack.
3: Thank you very much sir. You may go. Hello. Close the door. Close close the door. Some bears. Ah,
5: oh yeah. Delta P. All
3: right, thank you. Thank you, hello Sorry about that, folks. And uh also check out our website airlinepilotguy.com where you'll find information about the coffee fund and the plane tails and let's see. I'm looking at the menu here. Um Uh, apg on youtube the apg library where you can find good reads uh, managed by our librarian tiffany and uh, the apg store and so much more so please check it out at airlinepilotguy.com and also a big thanks to our producer in toronto uh, liz Uh, thank you very much for all your help yay we couldn't do it without you and until next time wishing you clear skies unlimited visibility And what do I say? Tailwinds. 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 No, Talons, Douglas.
6: (laughs) Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Happy holidays.
2: Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy.
0: Good day.
6: Such a good, good pilot. Till I started APG, I opened doors for little old ladies. I helped them to their seats.
2: Airline pilot guy, I fly. A
6: friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can't land it just fine
2: Airline not a guy I fly flying